Hello and welcome to the shitty post-apocalyptic cyberpunk future with uh with with the special guest this week who has already explored the shitty cyberpunk post-apocalyptic future we're going through right now. Uh I uh I'm George Weedman. We we have our co-host uh Liam Edwards here as usual. Hello there. Once again, Matt Visual is off uh, working in the mines, but we have a very special guest this week. We have Tarly uh, Veselikov, also uh, <laughs> known as your screen name. What, what, what should we actually casually uh, call you throughout the so conversation? My, my name's Tarly, uh, but you can just call me Ves. Um, I made that nickname like a lot of people um, when I was like 16, so... Like, like old Super Bunny up yeah. over here. Yeah. No. Oh, boy. I mean, yeah, I I have a, a screen name a lot of people know about. I think I was like 11 or 12 when I came up with that one. And I I don't know if I ever want to change it ever. I mean, it's... it's it's it's. I mean, you can't now. It's, it's your permanent. business. It's who you are. Hey, look, I, my, my PSN name is still like the one I used when I was like trying to be a quick scoper so it's like <laughs> <laughs> um, i thought yeah. i was being edgy with mine mine is literally just my name in japanese katakana and now i live in japan so i came full circle on my psn name thank you for coming on um you for, for people who don't know you are the developer of umarangi generation which is a first-person shooter photography game in which players complete uh, objectives going through levels that that tell a story through environmental storytelling. And uh, it is quite a a different story. It's it's a very unique game that, that I had a blast with that helped me process some very negative emotions a few months ago. And I especially am, am gonna love getting into the the DLC here. Uh, you have a version coming out on the Switch in a matter of days. Yes. Yeah. Um, that, depending on how things go, may or may not be out by the time mm. this comes uh, out. June fifth. We'll super so, duper close. Yeah. June fifth. June fifth. Huge congratulations, yeah. dude! Getting things out on the Switch is always exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's like a like a lightning event for me because it's like, you know, it's weird to think like 2019. I just felt like my whole fucking life was falling apart, and then like what. A year oh, and a bit shit. later, it's just like, oh yeah, you've been nominated for like an IGF. You're meeting all yeah, your heroes. Yeah, you're directly I competing like with in... your childhood in the form of Pokemon Snap. You're just like, Fuck. I feel like I'm in some sort of weird parallelection <laughs> here, where like I was a part of that IGF that voted for Grand Jury games and stuff, and like there were two games I voted for, Teardown and Umarangi Generation, and both of them got accepted. So I feel awesome. some sort of vindication for my taste in cool fucking indie games. Yeah. It was a conversation about Pokemon Snap, the new Pokemon Snap, when uh, I was talking to a friend about that, and I was thinking to myself, why aren't there more photography games? And he was like, George, I think you would like Umarangi better. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of the things we were like, we actually intentionally like pushed that back a month because we were like, there's no fucking way we're competing with Pokemon Snap. Like, this Ooh. is just going to be, like, a train wreck. And, like, you know, my big thing was um, I'd not really seen much footage of it, and I was like, oh, do they do the twist? Do they let you do, like, the Nintendo uh, World like, twist? And then I, yeah. like, bought it after, like, uh, you know, I went to, like, the gym and and bought it, and then I was like, they don't do the twist. We're fucking saved. We're good. <laughs> um, which I don't Such know a cool idea. Yeah. So cool. I really, like, I saw I saw you tweet about it. Yeah, and I was like, "Fuck, that's smart." It's it's just like I was I thinking, how can I do something with the switch that's like that in some sort of way? But that's really smart. 
Yeah, it's like I don't get it, eh? Because I, I like Game Freak or you know the Pokemon Company. They're not technically Nintendo, eh? But it's like all the yeah. DNA is there with like Nintendo world. You'd think it'd be like a no brainer, but um, it's super weird because every developer who uh, you know then has access to Nintendo's developer portal. You have the API. You can like yeah. look at what you can do with the Joy-Cons. Oh my God, the amount of different control setups you have to fucking go through when making yep. a Switch game. But like, you know, you have the API to be able to be like, well, what if I just use these? I'm guessing you're using the gyroscopes, right? To just like yeah, yeah. rotate. Yeah, yeah, and, right. And even just, then it's like, uh, you know, like, uh, you know how like both Joy-Cons technically have a gyroscope. Yes, But if in each you're using like dual joy or like just holding the joy cons they work still in tandem only using one no but like yeah when you go to submit like, it's technically you're only using the right one so like so the left weird. one <laughs> is not actually it's weird i i, I was like what because when i went to submit i thought the same thing and they were like no you're not using no the left don't worry one at all. about it yeah like, oh, okay that's weird I would be really interested if there's any way where you could um, track uh, either through like player data or, or place testing sessions how much people are going to make use of that feature. Because the, the the friend no, I was you talking can. to about Pokemon Snap, who who sold me on it, he didn't know that you could take vertical pictures in Umarangi by holding down the rotation buttons. Yeah, and that is a gesture that comes extremely naturally with motion controls when pointing and aiming a camera. And I wonder, and it really does help with a lot of the objectives in the game oh, yeah. too. On the second playthrough, I noticed how much easier it got when I when I did more vertical shots. But since you got to hold the the button down and wait a while for it to charge up, it's something that never occurred to him. You did something as well. This is a side tangent to that, but on that leaning and and taking, you know, like portrait photos. So yeah, portrait, portrait. Yeah. So I I've been making a prototype with a friend, like um, just for fun about. And it has some form of photography. And we had the idea of like, you know, pressing shift and using the scroll wheel to like rotate their camera into portrait mode. Like if you're holding a mobile phone um, and you stick with the controls, like you make them so that when you move around with it vertically, it's like the controls are like pretty fucked and it's like really hard to sort of like move. And you're kind of like trying to reorientate <laughs> yourself and you stuck with that. And I was like, cause I was having sort of a design like, conundrum in my head whether to be like once it's fully rotated do we just snap the controls so then it looks like you're walking in portrait or something and i was like oh no they you know you tell <laughs> just does it in numerical generation like fuck it i'm just gonna stick with this it's totally fine yeah so the story behind that is like uh we actually are putting out a patch on the fifth the pc as well <laughs> where it does recorrect no. your uh uh navigation because like that was one of like we, we okay so like with the, pit, the switch on we were like treating it like Okay, this is our like second chance to get it in front of people. Let's fix any issue yeah. anyone had. Yeah, with, with, I like, imagine like, that came up a fair bit. Well, yeah, there was like just a couple of people saying, "Oh, it's a little bit awkward," and you have to turn your head like that. We're like, "Okay, no, for mm-hmm. no worries, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll fix it up." And it's like, it's one of those things where I hope it's not like it, people like I go and release it, and like you know, I get a bunch of messages on the Discord. Oh, why'd you remove it? That was my favorite. Like, oh, I'm so yeah, nostalgic for the like old that, way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I feel it's like that double-edged sword where you like some players probably found it quite fulfilling to try and control the controls while it's sideways and like try to take photos. It feels almost like if you get the shot and you, you know, complete the bounty, then that was a photo worked hard to get, right? Like almost like you, you know, you're ducking down to the ground and you're really trying to get that photo and stuff like that. Which is really fun in real life. Yeah, yeah. Like it's totally a thing that could have been turned into a lot of games Mm. at this point. And there's only a few. 
why do you think there aren't more photography games? I thought you were going to ask me why aren't we talking about Mortal Kombat? Uh, no, um. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I only bought I only bought my Alpha Three notes. <laughs> Tell me, I only bought my Alpha Three notes. Come on, like. <laughs> uh yeah i I don't know like i think it's one of those things where like um you know and i i I, like when i made umurangi generation there's a whole story of like the sort of design ontology around like a lot of the indigenous knowledge and stuff in there yeah um but you know like one of the things making a photography game i was like okay look everyone's going to compare this to pokemon snap and if you go and look out there like uh thor the composer thor high heels i'm not sure if you guys are familiar with his yeah. videos and stuff you know we were talking about this idea of doing a photography stream where like we were gonna you know maybe do like a charity or a fundraiser type thing where we're gonna play a bunch of photography games and like you know it was the kind of thing where we went through like a catalog of like you know, uh, like I think it was like not GameFAQs, but one of those like early two thousands gamer sites where they list like just all the games ever made that are come under photography, and it was just this kind of yeah. thing where like, okay, there's Beyond Good and Evil, there's Pokemon Snap, Reef Shot, what the okay, Fatal Frame, <laughs> I guess, and then like you just get to the Fatal weird, Frame, all right, yeah, yeah, well, okay, here it is you just get this error in like two thousand to like nineteen ninety eight, and it's just like all these like horny like Japanese games where it's like, you know, take upskirts and like, you know, it's those kind of ones where like they were sold like, you know, at a, at a newsstand and stuff. And they're just like all these really random yeah. names. But um yeah. It, we, we were like looking there and we're like, there's really not much here. And then like th- there was this sort of thing where and you know this this is sort of also to do with the the game itself. But like a lot of times there's like this thing where they'll take the idea of photography and then like graft it onto something that's more exciting. Like um uh there was a game I think it was called um infra and it's like you have a camera and you like solve puzzles but you're also doing like you know uh disaster response stuff where you're like surviving where like a room's on fire and you gotta like climb out through a vent or something and um yeah i guess it's like i don't know it's sort of like there's not many uh games that are very like like that i guess it's, it's like a hard one to crack i think it's kind of like it is it, it is interesting i had this discussion yeah. today with a friend who is really into photography and he was talking to me about this new russian camera he'd bought like soviet yep. era camera that takes half frames so when you get like um when you get the roll of film back his fascinating thing was that in one like composition you get two half frames of uh, oh, two okay. different photos yeah, yeah. so then he can composition you know one photo and then the next photo to be like mirrors of each other or you can high five yourself or, you know and these interesting things and i was thinking about how technical it gets right yeah yeah and the idea that it's a kind of an unapproachable subject because even in this world of where everybody has some ability to take photos via like phones and stuff like that it's still this step beyond where if you didn't do it the service like even i think with pokemon snap they get away with it because you know it's not about the photography it's about the pokemon mm-hmm. and it's about just capturing photos of them but if you were to take something like umurangi generation right it took something that was like here are all of the different lenses here are all the different cameras here are all the different ed- for like photo editing suite tools you can do like it's oh, the flash you know the totally separate thing. yeah yeah, yeah which, it's which the, is a totally different type of photography yeah yeah Oh, exactly. And it's like, I, it needed someone to come along and do it justice. Yeah. And it was a case of, okay, what if you're like a photojournalist, right? Then you're inhabiting a role that requires that. What's interesting, because like when I was first telling a couple of friends about this, they were like, oh, yeah, you should do it where you're like the, the reporter who cracks the case. And I was like, 
Right. You know, but but I, I feel like that then oh. starts to lead into like, okay, now it's about a crime mystery, not about like mm, photography. Mm, and like, mm. you know, one of the things that was added in the DLC, uh, and it's like the bonus objectives equipment for when you like do the those levels is like we yeah. added in like shutter speed and aperture and ISO, which are like three really technical elements of photography. And we're like, okay, well let's put those like behind the you know, unlocks because it's kind of like, look, if you really want to get into it, there it is. But there most it is, people, yeah. it's like, I don't know what the fuck this does, right? Um, and, and it's kind of like, you know, for me, I, I was a photographer for like, I don't know, ever since I was in uni, like I always had these bands who would, they would always only be around for like three weeks. Like, oh, we're starting a band. You want to take our band photos? <laughs> and then like, you're talking to them. Oh, yeah, how, did you get a gig? Oh, no, we, we, we don't talk to each other anymore. But like, um. <laughs> I don't know. There was like, for me, it was just this whole thing of like, uh, you know, there's, there's like a bunch of like, like when I worked at this university, it was the sort of thing where, um, you know, you get given so many hats to sort of put on in that space. It's kind of like, uh, you know, one of them was just like, it's not even in my job description. It's like, can you take photos for events? It's like, yeah. You, sure can you just take photos of the events? Like yeah, when yeah. you someone to post these on Facebook. <laughs> and, and it was just like, okay, sure. I'll do that. And then like, you know, it was the kind of thing where like my um, boss at the time, he noticed I was actually pretty good at it. And he was like, oh, do you take it? I was like, yeah. And so, you know, I started getting more jobs where it was like, um, you know, uh, like I worked sort of in the Aboriginal, like Indigenous school uh, where we talked about, you know, like Indigenous knowledge and that. And, you yeah. know, one of the things, uh, you know, that you kind of need if you're doing Indigenous knowledge is kind of like, you know, if you're doing science, you need a science lab. If you're doing, you know, um, medicine, you need like a, you know, medical facility. And the idea is yeah. if you're doing indigenous knowledge, you need an elders group because that's part of the, you know, the the, the practice of doing that as okay. an academic subject, right? And, you know, one of the things that he found was like, oh, you're pretty good. Can you take some photos of the elders? And there's like a whole different, okay, that's an entirely different type of photography now because you're talking about like, Port, like a, portrait a, photography. Well, there's portrait photography. Then there's like all the sort of like the cultural aspect on top of that. And okay. sort of knowing like, you know, um, especially like if someone passes away, like make sure you can get that to the family and also like mm. try and scrub it off everything because if someone, you know, gets that in their hands and then they start putting that around, you know, on like brochures and stuff, which, you know, that wasn't even my part of work. It's like you don't want that because then the community is going to be like, why are you putting one of our deceased relatives who we're all mourning at the moment on, you know, your mm. c- come and study here kind of thing. So um, I just think it's this really interesting thing where photography has like a lot of practical application, but then there's also just like very different ways of doing it. Like with Pokemon Snap, it's the idea you see you're a nature photographer essentially, right? Yeah. Where yeah. Basically, you know, the scoring system and that works in a way where it's like get it big and in center frame, right? Yeah. Whereas, just <laughs> yeah. Get it there. Get it there. Uh, <laughs> no, no rule of thirds. Yeah. No yeah rule of just thirds. get it there. <laughs> and, 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 and like, uh, you know, this sort of comes back to the whole thing of like, you know, if you were a journalist, you know, you would do your photography differently or you might have to crop certain things or whatever. And then like with the DLC for this game, the final level, it was about, okay, let's shift it a little bit. Like you're still doing creative stuff, but now you're at a protest and this is what we're going to score you on. Like, you know, with the game, there's the obviously the whole like blue bottles thing. We'll get into that obviously, but like um, with the protest, it was like you get, points deducted for taking photos of people's faces because if you're at a protest that's something you probably shouldn't do in the modern day because 
there are little fascist dickheads on Twitter who will like dox it's people. It's so you know? fucking cool. Yeah, like that. That alone as a game mechanic is fucking incredible. But then the the you know the actual notion behind it is yeah. so powerful. I mean, George is going to explode if he doesn't get asked the questions yeah, sorry, he wants to ask. <laughs> I find it so fishy that more games don't leverage the features and the technology and I'm sure some some templates and tutorials of first-person shooter games into photography games. Um, and and like one of the reasons I, I mistakenly thought there was some inspiration from Blindo games before is because there's chunks where he basically replaced the gun in Quake 2 with the camera, uh, made the projectile invisible, and then replaced the, oh no, you just shot me animation with some other change of pose that more or less was using the same technology and framework of a first-person shooter, but but for photography instead. And just seem, it seems so obvious, and you can still have an exciting thrill against a, a dangerous threat with some sort of conflict to turn into a game while still not having to, to, to shoot people in it. And I... Uh, why why did you choose to call it a first person shooter in uh in the description? Uh well, you know, you shoot photos. Now, uh and, like there is a lot of parallels oh to that. Oh my god. When you uh <laughs> like like I made very specific references to that in the game itself like, you know, in real life you don't have a fire select switch like a gun for uh yeah. y- y- you know, your camera but like um y- you know, I I uh originally I was sort of writing like a tutorial, you know, follow the guy around and he talks and then you do a thing and that got cut mainly just because i didn't have time I was i'm like, so glad you didn't yeah really, i, I actually honest. think i'm so glad that you gave helps. the option yeah instead like yeah that. I, um like, like i was thinking about like okay what would this person who's telling you about photography actually say and i think it's one of those like you know in the tutorial there is you know obviously the person there and that was going to be the same as the person but like i remember mm. writing a line and it was like this idea of like of Gun can kill a dictator. A photo can kill an entire, like, you know, ideology or, or like an entire system. You know, because it's this idea of like, uh, you know, when 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 you're sort of talking about like, say, for example, like the academic field of semiotics and stuff like that. It's like the moment you start to sort of um, like like for, use a really famous example, which we'll probably talk about a little bit later on. But like that really famous image of like Che Guevara, right? Um, mm-hmm. the moment that f- t-shirt portrait, yeah, yeah, that, that like the one everyone, yeah, yeah. everyone knows it. Right. But it's yeah. like, it's this idea that hair blowing in the wind. It's, it's heroic. Mm. Or actually, you know right? what? We use a better one just so that we can talk about that later. But do you know what I'm talking about when I say the Marlboro Marine? Mm, uh, not off the top of my just, head, just, but just I Google that. About it'll, when I look at it. It'll, it'll come up. Um, this was one that I kind of looked at a lot, uh, when I was sort of looking at semiotics, but it's this very famous image that usually like, um, People will. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. The guy you know, smoking. The, yeah. The guy smoking. Right. And basically, the idea around that is that image is of uh, the Marlboro Marine. Right. And the idea around that is the photographer, Luis Cinco. He took that photo uh, when he was sort of, you know, an embedded journalist in the Battle of Fallujah. And, you know, they'd just been fighting all day and they hopped up on a, um, uh, a building to have a smoke break. And, you know, that guy there was having his smoke and he just snapped it and went, oh, that's a nice shot kept moving on kind of thing. And then at the time they used satellite phones because it was, you know, early 2000s and, you know, you can only send like three or four photos on on that data. And, and what he did is he sent those over and you know, like I could go into a whole thing about how, um, you know, the government controls photography during wars now, but like basically 
they all had to share their photos. And when Louis Cinco sent that over, every single, um, you know, paper in the States printed that photo and they all went, wow, Fallujah, like our boys kicking butt over there. Look at these Marlboro Marines, right? And they're talking about how, um, you know, basically these these patriotic heroes are going over there and everything. The reality of that image, though, is that's a soldier with extreme post-traumatic stress disorder because he's just been killing people all day. And as much as they, you know, talk him up as this big John Wayne, you know, kick-ass cowboy type dude, the dude was actually found with like a gun in his mouth the next day. Um, yeah, and it's this sort of thing where that image, you know, the James Blake Miller, the person in the image, that ceased to be him. That became Marlboro Marine. Like that was an image where the agency... Yeah you know, sort of took on its own, like, outside of his control. Because, you know, like, if you go and look at, if, if you if you see someone post that image today, they are not talking about James Blake Miller, the person who came back, you know, extremely scarred from the war and, and all the other stuff that went along with it. It's the, they're talking about it in context of this, like, you know, uh, you know. The image of American a- super patriotism and stuff. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's also scary how much of a mirror these things can become because Mm. under that context, it's a picture of a miserable person who's frowning and sad and dirty and beat up. And through a different set of eyeballs, it looks like a confident person who's having the most important moments of their life in a historically significant cause that uh, it it reflects more about the audience than what's actually the subject of the photo. Mm -hmm. Because it's like... There, there was like a lot of um, really interesting like thing where, where you'd see people directly reference this idea of like John Wayne and like, you know, all these really American uh, hero ideals and stuff where they just looked at that and they went, you know, like there's been analysis done on even just on the sort of like smudged war paint on his face where people are going, oh, that's a true warrior because, you know, it's like what the mm, boys do in Gridiron. The war they go paint. To, yeah. yeah, yeah, do all that yeah. stuff and it's. It's just this really interesting thing where, you know, like the reality of that image is not what the, you know. It reminds me of a photo that stuck with me ever since I, like, I have not, I don't have an interest in photography beyond sort of, you know, taking pictures for memories and purposes. That's not something I feel out of my boundary when I think about those things. But the picture of Afghan girl, Mm. I don't know if you've seen that before, the picture of the young Afghan girl. I do know that one. And that photo went like what you would assume would be viral of, then right 1985 or whatever it was right and was in like museums and everything but she was unknown for like 18 years or something like the identity of who she was for like 18 years and you think this poor girl who was living in afghanistan was becoming this renowned face of like almost beauty and culture like of the innocence of children but then at the same time was living this pretty horrendous life in afghanistan um, for all those years unknown it's uh, yeah it's incredibly powerful and that photo stuck with me for a long time because I saw it at a very young age when I was in elementary school I think um, but uh, it's pretty incredible um, how they take these lives of themselves I'm so sorry sorry if that derailed it a bit <laughs> No, I think that's the. I think that's what's so powerful about Umarangi Generation. Of course, like everything else that's going on inside of the game, I think you know. Yeah. Um, specifically, the stuff that uh, George wants to talk about from, but from the lens of like the way the player interacts with the game, that's the most interesting to me. And like even thinking about the tutorial and your your design decisions, then you know speaks to like how much I think you put the trust in 
people understanding what photography is at a very basic level and how like I'm just going to let you do this, right? And then you can take the photos that you think are cool, but they, yeah. they there are these objectives, but there is this setting that is interesting and I feel like you trust the player enough to be like you have this tool go and explore and do what these people have done, which is take these photos that may be innocuous at the time, but then could become these incredibly powerful images later. Hmm. And, and it has, it has this veneer of like soft requirements. The, the time limit is, is not, it's a suggestion. You can, you can go longer. <laughs> yeah. You, you don't have to get all the extra objectives to still read the storytelling going on in the levels. There's, there is a, a open-ended embracing of both rushing through the game as fast as you possibly can, looking at the numbers on your screen play style, as well as the stopping and smell the roses and try to think what what that piece of trash put in this corner of the room is supposed to be telling you kind of mm. play through as well. Um, so I, I, I read it in an earlier interview. I might have gotten it wrong, uh, but in case I didn't. Did uh, you go to school for journalism? Yeah, sort of. Uh, yes, I'll say I've done <laughs> okay. journalism. Uh, okay, so basically, uh, I mean, I could get going into why Australian universities are completely fucked, but um, I did a degree. It was called a Bachelor of Media, and basically it's what's called a cookie-cutter degree where you have, like, uh, tiny bits of degrees all spliced into one because they can't kind of, you know, get a cohesive... Like, you know, we all know the scam of higher education where... Like it's basically you're rocking up for the bit of paper. A lot of the training you get, it's not really relevant at the end of the day. But like, um, oh, it's who you know, not what you know. Oh yeah. Uh, well, like, so this is. I mean, I mean, we could probably transitionalize into some other just topic from this because, like, one of the things I remember, right, and you probably remember this too, George, is how um, a lot of the like GamerGate language when that was first, like, you, you know, that they were all screeching about that. They used words that were very specifically the kind of stuff that I remember hearing in those journalism classes. Yeah, you know, yeah. The SPJ code of ethics does not encourage a conflict of interest. It all sounds yeah, yeah. very official yeah, yeah. until you read the timeline on Wikipedia and realize, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. This is actually a, a harassment campaign. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, it's like, like that whole thing of like fascist co-opting language of the academia to then like assume legitimacy like i tried to put that in the mm -hmm. dlc very specifically but like very very well done yeah <laughs> you, you've just played the boomer uh game of the doom of boomers yeah, yeah oh man um but but you know it's like that that level as I, heaven yeah <laughs> it's so it's so good because as i mentioned to you when we were messaging earlier today like i was out for a walk and i was thinking about the bridging gaps of the generation of like the game of gators and what you were mentioning about that those earlier you know, older dudes who should know better, who still talk this nonsense bullshit, gamers, right? Yeah. And how that that line, that treading line between them and like these anime avatar weirdos, right? <laughs> like it's so distressing. And like in that one single level, it's almost like, holy shit, here it is. Yeah, finally here a game is. without ethic. Uh, finally a game without <laughs> politics. You know, the one with the, the Doom Marine doing the OK hand sign. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I was like wondering if there was a, a butterfly effect going on there of, of a bit of education in media and journalism and how powerful visual imagery can be with what is a, a really angry, robust assortment of posters in this yeah. game about taking visually powerful photographs. Yeah, well, like, 
with, with the posters and stuff, it was about like exaggerating to, to just show the absurdity of it. So like even someone who's like really deeply like locked into all that could look at it and go, okay, that is pretty dumb. Like um, I guess one that's maybe a little bit too subtle, like some people didn't, I think pick up on it as much was like, there's a, one of those little uh, flashing YouTube talking heads in the corner and he's talking about, was it a giraffe? Uh, no, it wasn't a giraffe. It was the fake Stephen Crowder. Um, it, it was like <laughs> popping there and it was like... The lobster. <laughs> yeah. uh, basically, he's saying, why should we trust kaiju scientists? They don't know what they're talking about. Because that's the same <laughs> thing that they say about climate scientists and people who have done yeah. like, you know, social sciences. And they go, social scientists? What's... What's that as a science, right? And the idea is to just show, like, okay, you've been through the base game by now. You've seen what these, like, the kaiju are like. I have spoilers for anyone who hasn't played the game yet. But, like, um, you know, and, and you get to see, like, okay, this is the absurdity of how these people are talking about this stuff to anyone who's got, like, any kind of education around it or has, like... Yeah, the you know, the facepalming, like, fuck me, come on, yeah, yeah. kind of, like, reaction to it. Um, In terms of, like, I mean you guys probably want to go into more depth than I do, but I just want to understand from like where you started. Did you make the game with the intention of being like, I'm going to go in this direction with it? Or am I going to make a game about photography? Cause I like photography. And then it just so happened like, Oh, I can also use this as a vessel to be able to say all these things I want to say. So like, yeah, my, my thing was like, um, you know, I, this is my first 3d game. Like I'd done apps before this and, um, mm. But you can probably tell from like the UI design of like when you're in the menus. No, nah, fuck, dude. I, I, shut up. It's very impressive. Don't yeah. don't even. Um, it blows my mind. Like even just the amount of assets you have in the game blows my mind. Yeah, it was that like blows my mind. Smashing through those pretty like get twenty done in a day and just like barely texture them. But like it's the posters <laughs> and everything. I'm just thinking about like me sitting down in Photoshop and be like, all right, I'm gonna make another variation <laughs> of this. But the amount of creativity you have in each one is it's like you never see the same thing again. Even with the graffiti and stuff like that, it's like, holy fuck, this yeah. must have taken ages. Well, it's like, uh, you know, like my thing was like, okay, I was starting out as just like a basic 3D. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to do 3D at all. So why don't I like start the game that just does like one element of 3D, okay, which is the camera. How can I like yeah. figure out how the camera works? Okay, why don't I make a game about mm. camera? Okay, camera game photo game whatever right and then i go all right then i started to notice that i was like okay at the end of 2019 um you know as i said my life sort of falling apart at that point my um job at the university it was pretty clear that they were about to rip everything down like um one thing that sort of happens in uh sort of indigenous spaces is this idea that like you know if indigenous people start doing well then oh what do you need help for you know what do you need funding for rip all that down or if you ask for funding it's oh Fucking, you know, always asking for money. Anyway, basically, yeah. we'd, we'd had like a 600% increase in students. And we're like, okay, we are at a breaking point now. We need, you know, funding or whatever. Anyway, that all got ripped to shit. And so we okay. all kind of could see the blood in the water. And we're like, okay, it's going to end soon. We need to like get an exit strategy here. Yeah. Um, what, do I, what do I do now? What, what do I do? And then the other thing that was going on was like uh, the 2019 bushfires in Australia just like cooked my mum's house. Like, destroyed everything Ugh. and so uh um, dude you know i was like fucking hell like and and so the whole thing was like we were there and we got to sort of see what was like going on behind the blue tape kind of sort of thing like you know we could sort of see what was the response from firefighters what did they actually do to like these old houses that were just you know tinder for the the fire to come through and like 
Yeah. Uh, you know, that obviously inspired the kind of like disaster setting, but you know, it was the sort of thing where we were like, you get back and you turn on the TV and it's like a small Macron in the bottom corner. And the reason for that was like, 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 and, and just to put it into perspective, most of the country was on fire at this point and the TV like news stations and that was still not really covering it. Like they would just sort of have a one minute who cares section, you know, oh, this <sighs> who gives a fuck town in nowhere is like on fire. Right. And basically the only reason that shifted was because it started, the fires started to get close to like, you know, electorate seats, like in terms of places that politicians needed to hold on to. Needed to care about. Yeah. Yeah. They needed to care about North Shore Sydney because that's where a bunch of rich people live. Right. And then it became this whole thing of, you could just see how the neoliberal cogs started to sort of like churn in the space where it was like, okay, first thing they started doing was not referring to it as like a bushfire. They called it like unprecedented summer weather or something like that right like where they would try to obfuscate the the reality of climate change right because that was the other thing is they don't call it climate change in any of the reports they'll say oh it's unprecedented right and the joke in australia is every year it's unprecedented because it's just going up yeah it's it's just getting up yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's the same in japan right now it's like oh wow the rainy season is happening earlier and earlier every year i wonder why yeah exactly and like it was just a sort of thing where you know i was sort of like fed up with this because like I was you know obviously like I know I'm gonna lose my job by the end of the year because of people playing games like literally literally people playing games like as I said we had this you know really like positive year 600% increase and everything and they just wanted to rip it down so uh you know I was like okay I started to dip my toe a little bit into like okay let's talk about neoliberalism and why this is like, why does it do this kind of thing? And I just found like, oh, fuck it. Like, just jump all in. Because like at this point, if you're just dipping your toes in, like all those like, I mean, it sounds a little bit like vain, like, oh, my game would appear on a YouTube heckler's playlist. But like, if if it was just like dipping in a little bit, it was like, you know, oh, that's going to be really easy for someone to rip apart because they'll just say climate change isn't real and then move on. But yeah. it's like, okay, well, let's go to all the other fucking 90% you cunts never fucking talk about, eh? Like, let's go to this, <laughs> like, let's go to this all this other shit, right? Oh, let's go to, like, let's go to how, like, the fucking media cover. Like, let's, let's do all this, right? And Let's just uh, go in. Go let's in, go like, in. dive straight in. And, like, I'm really glad I did because it was just, like, the kind of thing where, like, as you said, all these posters and that, they're all pretty unique because they're all, like, a different part mm. of it to talk about. And then, like, you know, it was the yeah. kind of thing where people who liked the game, um, you know, and were leftists like me were like, oh, fuck, finally a game that's, like, not shying away from this and stuff. And, like, I guess it was just, like, one of those things, eh, where, like, uh, you know, I, when I pitched the game to certain publishers, I didn't say, like, it was political. I just said, like, oh, it's kind of like a photography game with uh, Godzilla in it. And they were like... You know, they're like, <laughs> sign me up. Well, well, <laughs> yeah, you know, Shin Godzilla is a movie with Godzilla. Well, that was it. a big inspiration because that movie is literally about like, oh shit, really? Well, yeah, no, because think about it. That movie yeah. is like, uh, like, yeah, that makes a lot of they sense. They literally have a part in there, which I was like, fucking hell, this is good. It's like they go, the older generation does not e- acknowledge Godzilla even existing. And by the time they've, yeah. they, they've decided what they want to do, the problem's already gotten so bad that that solution is no longer relevant, you know? And it's this whole thing where they were, my takeaway from that film was like, oh, what's the way they beat Godzilla or what, how's the, how'd they beat climate change? It was, it was a bunch of young people who came up with, like, new ideas on how to tackle the problem and people could, like, actually assess it for what it was. And, like, I thought it was just, like, so interesting that there's that part in the movie where they try 
the old method of dealing with Godzilla and it doesn't work because that's what happens with climate change and stuff. They're trying all this old ideas of like, oh, incentivize businesses to be nice and stuff like that, right? It doesn't work, yeah. right? We all know this. And it's just like, you know, like having that in the game and was like, uh, or, or thinking about that, I was like, there is a way to do this and nerds will get it. Like in terms of putting it in there, but like putting it in there with like something to distract the like people who are not, politically minded from thinking it's like yeah super, and, and and that's not to be like nefarious or anything but it's that kind of thing where like i think we're well, still making a game at the end well, of the well day like my thinking is well. like if someone who is like a a like supposedly a political you know minded person plays umurangi generations like oh i love that photography game and then like three years later they're seeing the exact same problems we're going through now play out again they're like Oh, why does Umarangi generation feel really similar? Why is uh, the same, you know, same stuff going on again? And then maybe they'll like it's prophetic. Yeah, oh, so prophetic. <laughs> how did he know? Um, you know, <laughs> how, how did Warren Spector predict terrorism being the big spooky thing in the turn of the millennium? Who could have seen that coming? <laughs> how did Reagan predict what the name of the terrorists would be fighting in two thousand were going to be called on white paper? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was it like making a game day in, day out for hours at a time where the assets you're creating, the issues that you're capturing, and the stories you're telling are stuff that directly, intimately, personally frustrated you and made you mad? How did you deal with all that negative energy and still be productive and constructive and get the get the project done? I think there's like, you know, a couple of things I sort of thought was like, one was like, okay, I need to just make something because like, one, I was like, okay, I don't have many much savings, so I need to get this done in like a few months. Okay, that's that's always a good motivator, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the other one was like, okay, one of the things that you know we did a lot was like in Australia. Australia's sort of it, like it's a pretty racist country um, in terms of this. Like one of the jokes one of my aunties always had was like, you know, Australians have nicknames for everyone, but can't take a joke, right? Because they have a derogatory term for everyone uh, on Earth, and you know being uh, an indigenous knowledge school at a university and, you know, being in the current era where we, we live in where there is a large portion of people who now think that universities are what uh, evil SJW postmodern super Marxist facilities or something. Um, you, you've got this whole like thing where, uh, you know, you can't dumb down what you're saying because like you have to, you have to kind of tell it as it is in terms of like, you know, for example, one of the things a lot of Australians don't know is that Australia is one of the only populations who had nuclear bombs dropped on them, and that was an Aboriginal population in Maralinga. Literally, Literally news to me. Nukes. Guess yeah. who's never heard about that yeah. before? Well, there's actually a lot of uh, connection with uh, Hiroshima victims and Maralinga victims where um, they actually meet quite often because they have the same shared experience of that and I'm not saying like that was an accident. That was a deliberate thing where the uh, Australian government at the time said, "Let's drop bombs on them to see what happens." Right, and then that information was then passed on to the United States, and then you know that happened. Right, and you know it's this kind of thing where you have to honestly say what's going on there, and you can't distort the truth of that nature because doing so gives you know the Australian nation state another convenient thing to hide behind in terms of this thing like 
one of the things like you, you'll probably find is a lot of millennial Australians probably hold a lot of weirdly casual racist beliefs. And it's the sort of thing where... UK is very similar. Well, yeah. in the 90s, Australia had this uh, right-wing prime minister who said, we don't want a black armband view of history. And so what that meant was like, he put into law this sort of thing where you can't say Australia did anything bad in its historical record, which means you can't actually say that, you know, things like stolen generation or anything was necessarily a bad decision. You have to say it was an accident, right? And it's this whole thing where a lot of Australians who are like, you know, our age now went through that system with no like critical thinking skills or anything. And like if you went to a Queensland school, it was even worse because they taught you the most like condensed basic curriculum that didn't have any diverging from anything. Whereas like with some um, New South Wales schools, they would branch off a little bit. Um, And I just think it's the sort of thing where, you know, with this game, it was about like, you know, obviously in the DLC, it's about looking at what happened in 2020 and saying, you know, what does a neoliberal society look like when a fascist is at the helm? Uh, And, you know, in the game, the idea is to say like, the United Nations in this mecha kaiju anime universe that, you know, you often see, you often see this idea of like, you know, nerve or something like that, where it's this, you know, globalized conglomerate of, of all the nations coming together to protect themselves from earth. But it's like, okay, but what would that look like if this, this so called like protector was run by a fascist group? And, you know, it's this idea where uh, like, for example, in the second level, you see posters that like directly reference things like saying you're doing it for the greater good and um, don't question, don't do critical thinking. That's cringe, you know, or uh, like just directly quoting Jordan Peterson or something like that. Right. But then, you know, this idea of looking at what happened at the protests, it was this idea of like the big thing I I related to with that was just like, this is not new at all in terms of um, like definitely they've got new tactics, like the cops have new tactics for oppression. But in terms of like what's going on, this is the same shit they've been doing for like the last, what, five, six hundred years. Years and years and years. Like, yeah. You know, the thing I kind of think is like, this is the same stuff that they did in Atiro, like in terms of looking at sort of like the rule breaking in terms of like, you know, there's no rules when it comes to getting what you want with this this sort of like regime. And like, you know, with, with the stuff that happened, you know, like with, with the final part of that DLC where the police summon the thing that they say is there to protect you on you to kill you and they deploy the riot police to bash the shit out of you as a you know someone taking photos was to show this is the violence of what's going on we're not going to like pull that back we're not going to say like you know actually or you know the, the sort of stuff that you like the game has a kind of like some graffiti in that final level that sort of pokes a bit of fun at like watchdogs or cyberpunk in that which is this idea of like you know I remember the the word centrist getting used yes. a lot. Uh, you know, it's this kind of thing where, like, you know, one, it's like, okay, if you're doing cyberpunk, you have to actually be punk, you know, which is... You have to be fucking punk, You have to right? be, you have like, to be fucking oh my cops. God. Like, you can't be, you can't be, like, not all cops are bad, which I'm pretty sure Cyberpunk 2077 actually has, like, a bit of dialogue like that in it. It has, like, missions where you help out the police by arresting other criminals for them. Yeah, it's, it's like, like a whole side quest, isn't it? Like a whole, it's like dotted around that? the map. Like, um, yeah, what are you doing? It's just like, uh, you know, for me, it was just this whole thing of, like, okay, look, if we're going to do it about protests, we're going to actually, like, not distort what's happening in these events. Like, you can't, you can't like, put our own twitch debate bro spin on why actually it's yeah it's, like it's well okay. maybe they're yeah, doing yeah, yeah. this guy yeah so with that then looping back to george's initial question was it cathartic to do that or did it feel 
overwhelming when you're thinking about that every day. Because even with anger and the maybe the force that gives you to, you know, feel like, you know, I really want to do this to branch that change, to really try to, you know, use an outlet to be able to speak about these things, it still can be mentally taxing because that is a lot of issues. And, you know, with everything that was going on globally and anyway during that time, especially, you know, in Australia with the bushfires, you know, bush um in quotes there. Was it cathartic to be like, I'm making a poster because fuck the cops or fuck those guys or fuck Donald Trump or fuck the Australian prime minister, you know, like, or did it, you know, get a little bit taxing towards the end, you know, or do you still feel that power? Because if in the DLC, of course, you've gone even more into it. So it feels like maybe uh, fucking, I love this. I'm just using this as my outlet. I don't think I've played a game where I could like feel the individual expression of the developer's anger. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. there there's getting up where where you can like kind of feel the developer's sarcastic sense of humor, but not many experiences I can think back of where you like feel their anger. Like it it seemed really really raw and and with the the way I've not been able to handle that stuff well, I imagine that it is rough when that is your job every single day is to address your own personal anger like like uh, adjusting the shading on a skybox that it was going to remind you of of your mom's house burning down like that's got to be rough yeah like i guess um that's that's why there's jokes on it really like um you know it's that whole thing if you can't laugh about it you cry right which is why you, you put mm. the jokes in mm. oh that's good advice yeah, well i mean it's 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 the way a lot of our families have coped with you know the ongoing effects of colonization in terms of that whole thing where you know like as i said a lot of this shit's not new in terms of the same rules, the same process of, you know, keeping people under your boot comfortably is is the same stuff they've been doing for years. And, you know, having jokes in there, like, for example, the, the movie posters that say, like, the last liberal or something like that, you know, where <laughs> someone, yeah. someone, you know, trying to make out like they're this, doing this huge heroic stance when, you know, we all know what people <laughs> who say they're the last liberal are like these days, right? I, I also appreciate the the fighting game mock-up called liberal infighting or leftist <laughs> infighting. Yeah, and they've got like yeah. their strength, agility, ideology, like all their little stats. Yeah, you know, I think like with the game, it was like like Thor and I, we were originally going to do something a bit more positive for DLC. We're like, okay, we could do like you know, like repurpose like for example the strand and like redo that as like a pride level where it's like a bunch of people marching and making it a bit more positive but then like yeah a little week after we released you know george floyd was murdered by the cops and you know it was the sort of thing where we couldn't stop seeing just the you know pain from that community but also like the just raw violence from like cops and the trump administration and all the people who supported the trump administration right and you know thor and i were both really like fucking hell like this is fucked. Like, and, and you know, it was the kind of thing where with the music in the game, Thor composed like an entire new set of music for the DLC. And if you read the titles on that, he's not fucking around when like, you can see his emotional content to that as well. You know, there's like a song in the last of the DLC called like paint the town red or like both sides or here come the fascist bully boys. Right. And it's this whole thing where like, you know, for me, I was like, okay, this is a DLC that we're going to do. That's going to like, you know, we, we had some ideas for levels blocked out that would like, you, you know, for me, I was like always a big fan of that level uh, in Metal Gear Solid Portable Ops where you got to go on the um, the Metal Gear, uh, you know, for the multiplayer, George. You know, it's very obscure. 
I don't, I don't know if that narrows it down. Metal Gear Solid Portable Ops Plus. And if you're a lonely person like me with no one to play, you're just walking around it by yourself. But like, <laughs> they made a Metal Gear Rex level where you can just sort of crawl up it and whatever, right? But for me, I was like, oh, that'd be kind of cool. Maybe you could like see the robots a little bit closer. And then it was this idea of like, okay, but what would the fucking robots look like behind the lines of it? You know, if we're sort of thinking that these guys aren't as good as they they, they claim to be, because like, you know, you can sort of see that in the base game with like they're occupying the place. They've got a bunch of like you, you know, and you can sort of see that like they're not necessarily winning. They're they're telling you they're winning, but they're not really. And like you know, it just sort of became this thing where you know we had these ideas, like these sort of canvases to sort of think what would this look like now that we're sort of talking about this. And like I guess it's the sort of thing where like you know I have a little bit of an academic background in terms of things like you know looking at sort of fascism and things like that. And so I was like, okay, well, let's let's like examine what are these like, and we'll probably get to this later on. But like, one of the things that I noticed was that in games, whenever fascism is talked about, it is the most like watered down, safe, like given every single out in the book kind of thing. Like, like when say for example, a game like Far Cry Five comes out, and you have this group that's obviously supposed to be, you know, your American uh, Christian, Christian, like crazy. Militarily fascisty type, whatever. Yeah. Right? Why are they like that? Well, Far Cry 5's answer is not, it's not the ideology. It's like they're all just taking drugs and they're all just crazy, you know? But then it's like. It's a crazy it, cult yeah. instead of a crazy militia. And it's like, oh, like, like it's just the, the most like, you don't get it, do you? Like, this is not individuals being crazy. It's an ideology that informs all these decisions. Or they don't want. To get well, it. it's the kind of thing where, like, you know, and even even in, uh, I think, not Far Cry, but that one that is very similar, like Homefront: The Revolution, where it's the sort of thing where, okay, that's the North that's how fascism's portrayed. Now, what does leftist sort of resistance or revolution look like? And it's usually this thing where all the leftist stuff's taken out of it, and it's just a apolitical power fantasy, right? Like where it's this. This sort of thing. We're American. This is the Western ideology of freedom and et cetera, et cetera. It's not anything to do with like human rights or anything. It's it's all like even, that traditional. Even stuff that is though. American. Like for example, David Cage's robot game, right? Where it's all taking all of this idea of a leftist political movement from the 60s in terms of the civil rights movement. It's that, but yeah. all of the leftist stuff taken out and seen to be as this like, oh, anyone could stand for racism. It's like get on your fucking bike. What are you on about? Like, like it's just usually this thing of like, um, and, and this is the thing I think that I found really offensive about that game. It's like they took, you know, what is a black struggle and they whitewashed it literally in terms of like, they, they whitewashed yeah, it, like yeah. literally turning these characters who were supposed to represent that into, to white characters. And I mean that like in terms of this, like the goal to have like a bus scene, uh, yeah. regarding like androids getting off of oh, oh, like, gotta be on the back of the are bus. You, yeah, like are you fucking crazy like in detroit in again are you fucking the other one that was made made me just like lose my brain was like i think it was in one of those home front games they literally have the like gun-toting redneck american being like yeah we need to do resistance but it's like what the f like historically those guys are the guys that always like side with the people coming in like yeah we'll help you run the the only game that I think kind of got a little bit of that was like that Wolfenstein game where it shows the Ku Klux Klan like sucking up to the Nazis and even then the Nazis are like, yeah, but you're still fucking under my foot, eh? Like, 
anyway, just like you have any thoughts about Caesar's Legion from Fallout New Vegas? I, I actually think that was probably one of the best portrayals of fascism because it goes into okay thank you yeah because the villain will just straight up explain the actual science and philosophy right to your face and like he, he's like yeah this stuff really really sucks by the way in history it I, I know i'm being a villain but i am i am taking this cue off of something that was an actual real historical process and and you you, you rarely do see games get that frank about the villains like knowing that they're evil, but also going through a process of rationalizing it at the same time. Well, it's like one of the things I thought was so interesting about that game, like, as I said, like, this is one of the things I was like, okay, people actually don't hate political games. It's just these dickheads who, like, usually they don't understand the other 90%. And I think Fallout New Vegas is a very political game, but it goes all the way out, like, in terms of not just going on, you know, Roman's bad. It goes full into, like, the whole, this is what a fascist dictatorship looks like and like one of the things i found that was so and why some people weirdly would want that which is the scary thing they are a scarier villain than just aliens or monsters because because the guys will straight up tell you they're based on real human beings that existed in history and and i think one thing that's so good about that is it juxtaposes it with like and this is the neoliberal you know post-apocalypse equivalent that is just as inept as it was before the thing that, that caused the apocalypse to begin with, right? And you can see why some people... Yeah. <laughs> you can see why some people totally are like... totally fucking use yeah. the, the, the Roman imagery. Yeah. Like, that is also American fascism. That is what the manual was based off of, was a lot of notes from the old Roman Republic, and then the uh, frontier on the edge is based on how the Roman Empire had never-ending forever wars against the the barbarians on their end. And on the American side, you had never-ending frontier wars for a century and a half against a less technologically advanced society that already lived there in the first place and had no reason to go anywhere and nowhere to go, really. Like, it... it <laughs> Them choosing the Roman Empire is not just cosplay. Like that's that is. Oh. Can I can I segue sort of from what you're saying into something that I think you'll really enjoy? Yes, please. Skullface is one of Kojima's best characters because it explores oh, that. Bro. No, you don't like Skullface. <laughs> I will have to have a little bit of a refresher, I think. But I did think that there were some like cool ideas explored. Bas- basically, I'll explain it like this: right, the vocal cord parasites. Uh, actually, before we get into that. Let's think about what memes are, right? Memes are this idea that it's the information passed on to you by, you know, your, like it's the non-genetic information. It's like, you know, how do you walk? How do you, how do you talk? One of the longest running memes on earth is language, right? That's why it's in the game. What Kojima says is there are memes of how war is done because the way war is done has been passed down to these nation states. So... The Romans got some of their ideas from the Greeks, but then they became the Romans. Then it went to the Britons, and then it went to the US, and then the Nazis very famously based their ideas on what they got from America, and then after World War II, a lot of that stuff went to Russia and the US, right? That Western frontier on America was Hitler's plan for the Eastern frontier in Europe. Okay, now, the reason that Skullface is so interesting as one of Kojima's best written villains or villains in quotes is his ultimatum is he says, I want to get rid of those memes forever. Like one, it's explained in the Donna Burke song. If you go and listen to the things, you know, 
like what she's saying in the song. It explains it. But the other thing is like in that Jeep ride, everyone hates. He dict- he details his plan. He says, my idea is I'm going to unleash the vocal cord parasites that have all these languages associated with them that have these memes in them that are passed on through the language. I'm going to eradicate those languages and stop war forever. And if anyone ever tries to learn them, I'm going to nuke the shit out of them with Sahalanthus, right? And it is the most fascinating thing because it is the, like, it's the Ozymandias thing, right? Kill millions to save billions or, or whatever, right? Save to save yeah, a yeah. few. Yeah, and then yeah. the, the whole thing about that is sort of like, basically he's the only one out of like, you know, Big Boss and uh, Zero to correctly interpret the boss's will, which is peace, right? That's why Solid Snake's the hero of the series because his goal is peace, right? Skullface says, we can do peace, but we can do it like this and end war forever, like permanently, because we'll destroy the memes of how war is conducted in its current format, right? And it's this really interesting thing because it's like that to me, when I started looking at that, I was like, no, this really does make it sort of a little bit more like, is Big Boss actually the villain? Because like the thing I kind of think is like, you see what he does with war in the game. Like the resources you pick up in the game are like one, oil, right? Two, like precious minerals, three, diamonds, and four, it's biological materials. And you wonder, what is biological materials? It's fucking organs and shit, right? And that's stuff that's all happening at the moment in like America and like all these Western nation states in in Africa. Like that's still going on. And like you also have the economic metagame to it. Your your GMP dollars keep flowing in to stimulate more purchases. Well, what is what does for... GMP sound like? It sounds like GDP, doesn't it? Like it's very close. But it's gross military. <laughs> yeah, product. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's I think it's one of the most fascinating things about that game. And it's like I think it's almost that whole MGS two thing where like. I hope fans figure that out sooner rather than later because I think it it makes that character worthwhile because, like, I, I guess the thing that's so interesting about it is just, like, if you think about that and then you play it, it's, like, it makes a hell of a lot of sense why he would, like, talk to Code Talker because that goes back to the revenge thing of Code Talker being, like, well, they wiped out my language because I'm Navajo, right? And the only way Navajo... And, yeah, and what a lot of... Monolinguistic Americans don't realize is that you think in the language that you're you're taught. Like that's that's oh, an yeah. incredibly it, like that is such an interesting question. Life to everyone else except monolinguistic Americans. You don't notice it until you really look the other, expand your mind literally by well, that's, having that's other words super to interesting. think in. Yeah, yeah. So that's super interesting because living in a country where I, I speak a you know a second language and you know i have to converse mainly in a language that's not my first language you know one thing that a lot of people ask each other especially in japan is like what language do you think in yeah and the idea that when you're with certain people you think in english per se uh but if you are with other people you think in Japanese, for example. And that comes with that mindset quality that the things you think in English give you a different mentality about how you would answer certain questions versus in another language which might have different cultural boundaries or certain things that are off limits. It's so interesting to see how, especially Japanese speakers of English, almost their personality is let loose because English is a more a mentality associated with being able to do that, being able to be able to cut loose and stuff like that. It's so it's so interesting to think like that is kind of something that parallax the actual like scars of humanity via exactly 
all of these different memes, right? That's fascinating. I, I, I just wanted to say that I did have a hard time myself, like really mentally weighing the weight of a language dying until I caught my brain thinking in a different language when I was studying them. Like it, it did not hit me until I was in my 20s how, how incredibly important it is to preserve a completely different way of thinking of the world. Yeah, because like, I mean, the thing I would just say is like, uh, for example, with Tarao Maori, our language, it's like, we have concepts that do not translate to English, because they're just not concepts that, you know, our culture did not have, uh, you know, like we have other things that are, like, for example, there's a concept called uh, mana, right? And a lot of, you know, Western or, or tabletop RPGs use mana as like a in place of magic. But mana for us is a very different concept, because it's sort of like a balance, right? And there's another concept which is called Utu, which is about recorrecting that balance. And it can be the kind of thing where, like, let's say someone wronged you really badly, you'd go and kill them, right? But that was about rebalancing Utu. And that was like a different cultural context to that. And I think what's really interesting about Kojima's thing is he's saying this will to dominate is a meme. You know, this is a thing that if you look through it, this is a meme that not all cultures had and that if it is to be believed that this is a meme and it is transferred over generations, how do you kill that? And, or how do you stop that? How do you stop war if it's a meme? Right. And I think that's one of the most like, like, like for me, it's just one of those things where when I think about that game and that idea of, okay, Skullface is the villain, right. But he's like, like he obviously has a, a different approach to someone like solid snake, but it's like, his his goal at the end of the day is the eradication of war and it's just it's like a, such an interesting question i think for that character and like the way like, like like one of the things i think i remember seeing was this idea of like i think it was is it chapter two is called race i believe right because you have one, one of them is called yeah race. and it's like one of the things which is really interesting about that is like you know when that's like i'm not, I'm not sure how like well, that fits with, because I, I can't quite remember the order of events with that chapter with like what missions you do, but like, and obviously we all know about it being cut towards the end, but it's like one of those things where, um, mm. you know, race is this construct, right? But then when you start thinking about this idea of memes and like how culture's passed on, it's, it's one of those things where like, I feel like there's just a lot of this game that you kind of need to know. I saw one of the questions earlier, which is about YouTubers and we might not go into that due to time, but like one of the things I think is really interesting is like with, a lot of YouTube stuff is it's like they usually talk about meme as if it's like a virus, like because they think of viral meme and stuff, and they'll talk about it like it's this. Um, well, it's 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 the, the gene is where the word comes yeah, from. Yeah, which, which Richard is Dawkins, which when, a, when yeah. a virus squirts its genes into whatever it's infecting. Because yeah. because if you read a lot of the um, meme discourse by Susan Blackmore, oh man, there's a really great video of Susan Blackmore talking to Jordan Peterson. He has no idea what the fuck she's saying, and he'll try to like. He'll try to like one up her, and she'll just say, "Oh yeah, meme gene coevolution." You'll be like, oh, uh, "Anyway, there's like, I don't know, there's like a <laughs> lot of stuff there where I feel like it's almost like the idea of meme has become a meme that's been transferred over, and like, because I sorry, one of the things about memes, the word is like, it's the word. The it's word. unfortunately the association once again talking about that idea of the cultural identity the of a word between gene and meme is it's like genes and memes do the same thing. They can pass on perfectly they can mutate or they can die out right that's the that's the and yeah and it's mutated yeah and it's like meme means joke now oh yeah yeah it it did not originally Uh, even that it's like uh one of the things i think blackmore's work really talks about is this whole idea that she said like 
a meme doesn't have to be true to spread. Like it can be a total lie, and it was. Right. And she was talking about, like, you know, for example, I mean, it was written in the two thousands. You know, those junk so emails where you have to send it to ten people or you'll die or something. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. <laughs> you think about how innocuous that time was, and you're like, oh fuck, that was a prediction of the terrible times we face now regarding in fake 99 news and in 2000 the y2k bug was a meme and nowadays considering the y2k bug a meme is is considered incorrect because there was a, a big endeavor going on with programmers at the time working their asses off to make sure it didn't <laughs> like the a bad infection can spread through memes is just as real as as the original intent of well, it's, it's almost like uh, just it being a pure idea. It's almost like the Y2K bug, like the Y2K meme has mutated into the 5G meme now because it's the same, like, like it's it's yeah. the same mm. script. It's just like changing the characters out in that, eh? So how do we take these concepts and, you know, the stuff that Umarangi Generation talks about, the one thing I think you take away from, some people might take away from the game is that there's no hope. People fight back, but in the end, it doesn't matter. It's all for nothing because oppression will win. Oppressors will be too powerful. Um, there are these, it's almost like there are these otherworldly forces. You know, let's take the kaiju as examples, right? Even if you fight back, you 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 might not be strong enough to overcome. And I almost find Umarangi Generation a celebration of someone doing something they're passionate about just at the end of the world. Some guy who likes photography, who's just doing it, and is is trying to distract themselves from what exam you know what is happening around them. How do we you know necessarily flip that message into we can do something about it? We can do these things. You know, we can talk about these issues, but it leads into action that means that with memes and stuff like that, not going full skull face on it, of <laughs> course, but. How do you think we can approach these things moving forward? Because it's only going to become more tense, more heightened, oh, more. Dude, this is going to be a big week for that. It, uh, it's going to happen. Report is coming out. People yeah. are afraid about aliens, and that's it's all a mirror of looking at something in the news and seeing what you want it to be back. It's yeah, Talai. What do you I'll, think? I'll answer then, this one quickly. Like I, kind I, of I, the, that uh, you know. Waffling on for quite. George a bit. wants to talk yeah, about aliens. I, know, I, know. Again. I want to tell my story about aliens. <laughs> uh, I would say, like, there is a bit of hope at the end. Uh, you know, it's the sort of idea that, like, you know, one of the things when you finish the DLC is it shows the report on the mm, money spent yes. by the government to stop you from, like, telling them fuck off, right? And you see at the end there that it says the UN spent like what two trillion or two billion dollars on the last 12 hours or 24 hours just with all the shit they had to do with deploying and stuff like that. And basically it's this idea that they can't actually keep this up forever because even if you are like the most fascist government on earth, you are still liable to your capitalist overlords who fund your bullshit, right? And if they start to see that you yeah. are sinking all this money into something that, like one of the things I think is is very telling is that a lot of the people who were funding Donald Trump in his election were also funding Joe Biden because they were like, we can't, like they had to hedge. You mean they, like corporations? Yeah, well, like all the political donations. They yeah. had to hedge their bets. They went. Hedging yeah. your bets. Um, you know, for them, they would have been, oh, it's great if Donald Trump gets in because he'll reduce all our taxes or whatever. But at the same time, they were going, you know, like. We need to curry favor yeah, with like, Biden. Like it's going to be more uh, like 
more Benef- of a beneficial if we're not boost. spending all this money that we have to sort of top back up somehow or get get into national debt. Like what's that's one of the things that that I think politicians fear the most is national debt because it's something that you can't really blame with anyone but yourself, especially when it keeps going down. But um, in terms of the stuff with the kaiju and the base game, because that does seem a bit hopeless, it's more with that the idea of saying. This is what it's like if it's too late and we need to get our fucking asses in gear with this. Because, like, uh, the, the idea is to say, like, the kaiju was put in there very specifically because it is a thing that you can't deny doesn't exist. Okay? You've seen it with your own eyes. Yeah. You know it's there. And this idea is to say the Umurangi generation is the last generation who has to watch the world die. Right? The idea being that they're the generation who are, you know, where we are at the moment or, like, where the Zoomers are at the moment where they have to watch all the people above them, the other generations above them, continue the same mistakes over and over again without changing course. Like like one of the things I always think about is the boomers, right, the ones that are totally inept at this point, were the same generation who did all that protesting against the war and civil rights and stuff in the 60s, right? And then they just got there and they went, nah, it's all good. I want to make a. I want to Life's make good. a million dollars now. I don't care. And like you know, yeah. you can see a lot of Life's the um, a lot of the figureheads at that time. They moved into positions where they just took a bunch of donations. Like there's that movie, the Chicago Nine or whatever. The yeah. Chicago, yeah, uh, was such yeah, a yeah. And like and, and, a lot of the actual people yeah. in that thing, the ones that didn't die of like LSD and stuff, they moved into political positions or like you know hedge funds and just became you know the, the same <laughs> problem, right? It, it was. Part of the American yes. system. Um, so, so I guess I guess that's my my sort of thing is that like Umarang. So is the is the hope then that this is almost a prediction of the future? Like, look, get your asses into gear now because this is coming for you. There, but there is that shining light of like, if you get your asses into gear, if we can get our asses into gear, then we will avoid the inevitable in some sort of way. No one wants to be that Umarangi generation, but it's that thing. And it's like that human nature where it's just too late. We are such a, it's so fucking frustrating that almost the biggest life lesson you ever learn is doing your exam on the, doing your homework the night before (laughs) it's meant to be in, right? Doing your essay the night before it's meant to be in is almost the biggest life lesson you can ever fucking learn from because it affects almost every political aspect and every humanitarian issue we're facing because we leave it so late, because no one will do anything about it, because no one can persuade politicians or people in positions of power to do something about it until it affects them. I like the, you know, going back to the story about the Australian fires and your mom and them getting so close to those cities where the electoral votes are, it's like, it's so anger inducing that someone won't do something about until it, it until their, it affects yeah, them. Until it affects their political It absolutely yeah. infuriates me. It, even in our small bubbles of like game developers or even the games industry regarding social change, right? When an issue comes up, let's take Israel and Gaza as the most mm-hmm. recent one. Everything like, let's say people have been preaching about, for example, like Rami Ismaili, of course, Rami tweets a lot about being a Muslim and, and you know, he'll tweet a lot about that and people are like, yeah, good job, Rami, right? But then when it's like international news that there is this population who are suffering and everyone bands together and it's like, why did no one pay attention initially? Like, you know, these tweets that go into, into the void of these issues that then become larger scale issues 
over time. Why is it that even down to the single person, it's always until it's too late and then action and social change happens? At least thankfully it does happen, but it always is still at that last moment. Um, great. We'll raise a load of money for Gaza, but already like a hundred people have been bombed, right? Why? It's infuriating. It's so fucking infuriating. But I do like the idea that you have pretty much made the most political game of all time. <laughs> I'll, I'm basically blacklisted from like every publisher from now on. So, you know. <laughs> Which is weird because on the flip side of that, I mean, the press that Umarangi Generation gets for just being a great game is interesting too. Because I think if a lot of people read about Umarangi Generation because of the way, I don't want to criticize the press, but maybe do touch on politics and don't touch on politics. I think the, the most I read about Umarangi Generation is about the game, about how fascinating to play the game is, how it is, you know, a, a really interesting world to delve into. But it doesn't, you know, a lot of people maybe skirt the line about talking about the politics because they fear of story spoilers or they fear of, even though they'll hint at like, what is the content, they'll avoid it because of, I don't know, hiding their disguises behind, oh, it's a story spoiler. I don't want to tell you what happens. I don't want to touch on that, but it's a great game and you should play it anyway. It's almost like they're fearful of talking about it. Um, in the grander scope that we have today kind of thing. Does that frustrate you a little bit? Do you feel like I have made essentially the most political game I possibly can? I have put my heart and soul into cathartically getting all of these issues out there and and then to read things that maybe just are like, oh, Emerging Generation, it's a great game about photography. Yeah. Yeah, or is it is did it end up whooshing over some of the audiences? I, I would definitely say so. The funniest example of that was like Gamer Fascist on Twitter, and he was like, he got to the final level of the DLC, and he said, he saw just like an A cab graffiti. And he's like, what the fuck? This game's political. It's like, did you not, did you not play the entire fucking game, dude? Like, uh, but you know, it's just that whole thing where like, like, like in terms of the press and stuff, you know, we saw this like just a few weeks ago with IGN, right? Like where. I feel like sometimes, uh, and I know you guys were talking about this with you know unionization and stuff. I feel like there's almost this expectation that you can't talk about the political nature of something because it's it's too hot button or fringe or whatever, right? And I feel like with this mm. game, you know, because I worked at a university and we just talked about it all the time, right? It was like, okay, well, I think I got the confidence to just like assert, you know, some some like basic truths that everyone knows is right like like you know for the example uh, i was thinking was like with the gamers palace it's using all like you know internet language and all the stuff that we see all the time and i think even that's one of those things where like a lot of games tend to shy away from that because they think it's like oh no 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 one knows about that no one no no one gets it no one knows what's going over uh, in 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 the real world you know i don't want to alienate anyone but it's like i think there's just this weird thing where like people try to think that there's like what happens online and what happens IRL is like a, a huge separator, but it's really not anymore. Like, you know, my, my dad occasionally tries to tell me about dihydrogen uh, chloroxide, whatever the fucking anti-COVID thing is, you know? And I'm like, okay, the, the line is, 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 is <laughs> chloroquine. Well, basically he told me he was drinking bleach. So I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Like Australia doesn't even have a COVID <laughs> issue. Like, what are you doing? You idiot. <laughs> like, um, Chloroquine. Just wait for the fact, like, uh, oh man, we're just getting into it. But like, I don't understand. Like, someone please correct me how anybody could think, right, I'll take this, this bleachy-like substance, because I was told to by Donald Trump, I'll take that and it'll be safe. 
but I refuse to take the vaccine because I'm scared of getting 5G virus chips inside <laughs> of my body. How do you how do you mentally come to that conclusion about one not being safe and one being safe? It's because of the post-truth era, the yes. traditional institutions of verifying truth and th- are breaking. And there down. we have it. Yeah, and just, and there are few oh. places where this is more visible, happening to more people of more persuasions and political compasses, because the traditional issue, the traditional Babby's first conspiracy theory of the governments are covering up aliens, is easily the most obvious place <laughs> where you can watch this happen. If you want to know how religion spread in ancient times and how lies and rumors spread during times of war, like this is just a microscopic peach tree dish of so many issues of human communication throughout history is following this alien story. Which we should move on to. Come on, come on, George. We've been seeing you being there like, please shut the fuck up. I want to talk about aliens. It feels almost like <laughs> aliens, you know, this incredible subject that might change humanity forever is less dour than all of the things we've just well, you, talked about. You guys about. have seen like the memes addressing that, right? The aliens coming down and the doomers just being like, I got a lot of shit going on right now. Like it is so, it's so different than usual, but still the same <laughs> I as usual. I got a lot of I shit am, going on right now. I am, I am fascinated <laughs> by these aliens because I am steeped in a world where where I constantly have to try my hardest to make sure I'm not saying something wrong in front of an audience while also at the same time watching that audience spread a lot of stuff that does seem way more obviously wrong to me than it does to them and I feel like you get a heavy dose of that too because you used to be in this world you used to do YouTube right yep so like yeah from like you should know how how rumors can spread into lies that turn into movements that turn into fucking cults it's it's one of those things, eh? Like I think about like the whole YouTube thing because it's like with YouTube, it is basically people being dude, trust me on everything, right? Like, and I feel like 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 one of the the <laughs> things which like makes me think a lot about that is like George, you've got a formula for your videos, but it's not become like formulaic yet, where you're sort of like ticking off boxes. Like you, like I've you know I've watched your content for like five years, and I know it's like that kind of thing where usually it's a George video, but it's not like I go. And here's the part where George makes a Dark Souls reference, or, or here's the part where he asked me to buy Raid Shadow. Yeah, or something. like a callback yeah, yeah. or something. And, and, and like, well, what about the noodles? Well, hey, the noodles, you should bring that back, to be honest. Put a bit in Umarangi generation, oh. but they're squids, right? No. <laughs> you, uh, what do you want? More or less of this? Uh, um, no, one thing I think is real interesting, eh, is like the weird hive around YouTube tends to make it so that like video content structures become these like things over time like i'm sure everyone here at least watches like matthew matosis right like we all know who that is um yeah mm -hmm. i think that was probably one of the first people i remember doing videos that were like over 20 minutes like whoa someone did a review on zelda that was over five minutes long what the hell right you know and you, you watch it and and whatever right but i think like one thing that's really interesting about that is like now there's this whole subgenre of like long form YouTube videos and they're really like missing the point of what analysis is. They're just stretching them out for as long as possible. Like the example I kind of think of uh, is like, I was, you know, okay, like, you know, you get in your watch to watch just like random videos. One person was like, ghost recon wildlands analysis. I was like, Oh, okay. Maybe I'll have a look at this. Maybe it's kind of like, um, uh, like Noah Caldwell Gervais video. And in like the first minute, the guy goes like, he sees a, a random bit of dialogue that someone probably wrote in about five seconds where one of the like soldiers says to the other one, he's like, 
oh yeah, I can't wait to get back to my kids back home or something like that, right? Like just something like that. And the guy went on for like five minutes about like, yeah, this is just such a good thing. It's just reminding us of what service people go through where they're just always thinking about their families and stuff. And it's just this weird like- Oh, it was a mirror. Yeah, he projected an image back at him. Well, it's just like to bring this full circle around UFOs, it's one of those things, hey- Marlboro Marine? (laughs) Well, no, no, to to bring it back to UFOs, all right? It's this whole thing of like- like with a lot of the UFO conspiracies, they're just like weird confirmation bias. I'm not having a go at you, George, but like there's this whole thing of like, if you look at like UFO conspiracies through the years, they're always like a weird confirmation bias of whatever's going on. Like in the, um, you know, like 50s and 60s, they're all like, we need to get rid of all the nukes, you know? And then like in the 80s, they're all about like rape and probing and stuff. And then, you know, like we don't see much UFO stuff now, but I assume like when that starts to become the like new Alex Jones topic, he'll be like, they're telling us that, uh, you know, the SJWs are killing the earth or, or, you know, that we need to be more free or something like that. Right. Maybe. I don't know. I'm just dumb. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) So the big thing going on right now in the community is a schism between a group who are being known as a debunkers and the groups who are known as the true believers. And I have seen memes depicting the debunkers as hunched over Virgin V Chad sort of type drawing <laughs> oh, where they Jesus. were called like the desperate no life debunker, making a reference to the memes over, over in recent years of Coomers yeah, yeah. talking about how this guy spends oh, wow. like like nothing with his life. He's miserable. He doesn't believe in hope and optimism. He is just there to shatter everyone's dreams. And this is the caricature they're using to refer to what I thought the practice of the hobby of ufology was, which is to debunk stuff rather than verify it as hard as you possibly can of aliens. And so now there's so many discussions going on that are assuming that abduction stories are true, that are assuming that all of the strange dots people have seen throughout the years are the same strange dots they're seeing now. It is this inductive logical process where they're working their way from a conclusion to the evidence rather than from the evidence to the conclusion. And I swear it's the same thing that was going on in the ancient world before people had newspapers. (laughs) Well, I got a story. Yeah. Yeah, this this is kind of wild, isn't it's like, it? It's like a, okay, I'm not going to say it's UFOs, but it's very like, what the fuck? Because it's, uh, earlier before the show, I sent you guys a link, the Google coordinates, right? If you can just open yeah. that up. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. We'll plug it in. Should I should I share a map with the audience or is this classified top secret information? <laughs> you can see where my child home was. No. Okay, so like when I was younger, you know, my mom sort of moved around a lot and she was in a stage of her life where she was sort of never anywhere to go. And we had, you know, like eight kids or whatever. So there was a farmer from one of the churches nearby. And he said, Oh, I've got an old shack on this property. And uh, if you look at that geolocation point, you can see a little. Yeah. White yeah. Dot in like a, literally the most barren remote house I can see. Well, so like that was, that was like on a hill. And if it like rained really bad, like you can see there's a river below it. It would fill up and you basically were on a trapped island for a couple of weeks. So you're really isolated. And, and you know, we're talking like no power, no running water. Like if you wanted to heat up food, you had to use yeah. gas, like cooking stoves and stuff. I just want to point out, this is already creepy because the creek is called Six Mile Swamp Creek. And I feel nothing <laughs> ever good would happen at Six Mile 
Swamp Creek. Maybe that primes your your brain to start expecting the worst, and, and possibly the fight or flight kicks in. And uh, I, I going to tell us. Can, 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 yeah, yes, so, yes, so basically, on. we're in this super isolated place for a few years, and you know, obviously, moving to there, we already had pets, and I had this dog that was a German Shepherd, and it looked sort of like a dingo, like it was a cross with like it, like the mother dog had gotten out and then had come back pregnant, and the baby dog that we got looked like a dingo. Anyway. Basically, you know, we couldn't just let it run free because this is a farmer's property and there's a bunch of cows, you know, roaming about sometimes. They'll go off into those, that, you know, forest just above, just north of there, you know, and they'll they'll sort of moo during the night and stuff. So basically, I can't just let it run free. So we had to sort of chain it up and that kind of thing. And so what I would do every day is I would take it for a walk and, you know, walk off into the forest and come back, you know, for an hour, just like to get him tired so he wouldn't be barking all the time. And my sort of ufo story because i can't honestly can't explain this story because this is one of the things where i just i don't honestly i just don't have an answer it's such a Uh, well that that is the literal definition of you know an unexplained unidentified because like i was thinking it's like unexplained phenomenon is that what uap or something's now unexplained aerial phenomenon uh they 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 changed it to uap to uh try to break down the stigma of uh reporting (laughs) they can't say alien you know (laughs) Because that's copyrighted by Fox. <laughs> I also think that that it it could all just be a light show, so they don't want to call them physical objects either. But anyways, anyway, uh, I'm trying not to sound like the Colonel from MGS2 here because it's one of those things where it sounds like the whole oh, I, I saw a flashing light and then came to. But basically, what it was is I went for a walk with this dog, and you know, as I said, there's cows on this property, and occasionally a cow would just you know die and they'd bloat up and you know, scavengers would come and eat them or whatever. And I was walking through the forest yeah. with this dog and I come to this area and fuck me, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about this. It was like, there was a dead Holy cow shit. and above it was this giant black dog. And when I say giant, I mean like bigger than the cow, shaped like a dog. And I sent another image to you, which was this fur it had, right? And when I say it was a dog, it was a dog, yeah. right? Like I remember that. And the thing about it was that when you looked at it, you could see sort of like dissipating heat, like like almost like a mirage or something was coming off it. Oh, like like a like, like blurry a post processing effect. Y- yeah, like like <laughs> uh, you, you know that like that that almost like you know <laughs> when you see something that's hot and you can see the the, the yeah haze. haze coming off it, and yeah. so yeah, it had that shiny like fur that looks sort of like horse fur. But it was just this giant thing. And I remember walking there and I had this dog with me and I just turned, I went, he hasn't seen this thing yet. I need to just fucking turn around. And I turned around with this dog because if that dog barked at it, I was like, fuck, what would that do, right? If that dog barks and that's another dog, they will bark at each other, right? And that one will come running to me. And so I walked back and never saw it again. But that's my story of like, something that happened out there that I still can't explain because I remember that and it like it was the kind of thing where you could see it eating it like its mouth going like like let me try and just think of the motion so it was just like could it have been a bear for some no, bears reason in Australia. I just looked it up apparently bears don't live nope, in nope. yeah but may, maybe a starving escaped emaciated <laughs> bear shipped in from somewhere well, no, else it wasn't, ended up there somehow it wasn't fat like a bear it was thin like it was thin in its body and thin in its legs Skinny bears look weird. I think they, 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 they have the, been like the like weird mushroom reports from Mario? of people not knowing 
No, no, a, a weird, misshapen, emaciated bear that that's like skin and bones. But, but how does that explain the closer the to hate, dogs when you get to that the point. hate thing? I just oh, okay. I can't explain yeah, that because I'm like, thing. what the f-? like? Because I, mm. I thought about this, it's like maybe it was just a big dog, or maybe it was like a horse. But then the heat thing, because I'm like, do you have wolves in Australia? We have, I we have wild dogs and dingoes. We don't have wolves, I don't think. And can, I, can they have like weird genetic deformities sometimes every now and then? I maybe? honestly don't I, know because my other story that I had was this other one, which was when we got off that place, we moved a little bit north of there to this place called Rapville. And if you sort of scroll out, you'll see a, probably a yellow dot that says commercial hotel Rapville. Basically, it was a town of about 100 oh, people. Yeah. Yeah, like we're talking yeah. RE Village type thing, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Basically, there was a <laughs> creek that runs down the Holy back there shit. called Myrtle Creek. And that was another area that was really weird because you'd occasionally find like animals that had been like ripped up and thrown everywhere, right? And that's explainable. Like that, yeah. oh yeah, that could be a wild dog or something. But then occasionally you'd come across these trees that were weirdly lacerated around it, right? Like, and I can't explain this. They were just trees and they just had these giant hits in them. You know, and we don't have animals that really do that. Like it's 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 one of those things where I just went like, what the fuck was going on out there? Like I honestly like I think it's just one of those things where you don't know. And so your brain does all this work where you go, like, what the fuck happened? Like because I'm thinking about stuff where it's like, maybe it was just kids, like they found a dead animal and they threw it all around or something. But then I'm like, just so yeah. specifically that it's it's sort of almost like a ritual or something. Well, bears scratch trees. So your your theory is bear, escape bear. What's your, <laughs> what's your theory, Liam? My theory, so I wanted to ask you a question about you personally. Do you, do you generally, you know, prescribe yourself to logical thinking or are you open to that human beings are unable to capably explain everything like i'm not religious like i used to be when i was younger but because it was like you know mm. just bible bastion or whatever but like my thinking is that usually the what would you call them cryptids and stuff sometimes they tend to be like like there's a there's a really good paper called a glossary of haunting and it's sort of this paper about comparing western and japanese horror and it's always it's sort of this this sort of thing where they're talking about a lot of Western horror ends up being it's usually related to sort of you know Native American genocide because there's always a if you please the spirit it'll go away kind of thing in the end. Whereas like in Japanese horror, yeah. you know you put the VHS tape in you're fucked. Like there's no coming back from it, right? And there's a yeah. big difference. It's almost like the, the the paper was sort of talking about like a lot of times horror is or, or these like sort of scary stories or whatever are these like silent admissions of like guilt or something like that. But like Guilt, yeah, yes. exactly, right? But, but there's always an explanation yeah. from the origin of it, whether it comes from a powerful tool to scare people as used to get people to do something, mothers saying stuff to children, et cetera, yeah, et cetera, don't get right? play in the woods. So, like, yeah. in terms of, like, yeah, the logical thinking element would be that it would be explainable even if it could be the story of a circus rolled by, they had a bear, yeah. and even if it didn't look like a bear or something, just that that illogical logical explanation where one day you suddenly happen to come across a rogue wolf or bear or something. Whereas it's weird though, because my own thing is in the past couple of years, like especially with getting older, I've developed stuff that I've never had 
my entire life. So like anxieties about health and stuff mm. like that. And I'm, I've always kind of been a very logical person. I, I like to think that at least there is an explanation as to something. It helps me um, be able to pass information and, you know, be calm about things. It's kind of a, it's also a mentality state because you, you can always sort of explain something, but even with something like health anxiety, you could go to a doctor and the doctor can tell you, don't worry, you're fine. You know, this thing is this, and this is this, you should be okay. But you go home and you think about it and you're like, logically, I know I'm fine, but I cannot get over my own thoughts yeah. about this. And yeah. I feel like a lot of these things prey into that human mentality about yeah. it. Whereas no one could ever convince me unless I truly saw from my own eyes, especially in this, uh, you know, we've touched on the era of false yeah, information yeah. and stuff. It, unless I saw an alien as truth and I saw that, it's not about denying it or anything. It's about that, that hard scientific evidence. Right. You could not tell me aliens exist, right? just because I, I would have to see that. But I logically could understand, one, scientifically they could exist because the the way the solar system is built and the universe, et cetera, chemically, they could definitely exist if we do. And then logically, I can also believe that they would have technology far more advanced than us. But until I saw that, and because we live in an era where I think they would have already been here, just based on the age of the universe, I still can't logically get over the fact that I don't believe some days that I don't have X disease or I don't have, I'm not suffering from something. The problem with my leg is not some sort of blood clot that's forming or something like that, right? No matter how hard I try. And I feel a lot of human anxiety stems from that. And I, and people get scared. And I feel like scared is when your anxiety is at the highest and the, and, and you're, you think the most illogical. And I think maybe in those instances, my, what I would look to is, what would be the illogical, logical explanation about mm. this? What is George saying something like a bear happened or something came through? Like your explanation about kids fucking around with animals. People are psychopaths, oh, yeah, right? Especially like, when you're in, it is very like crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's very explainable that they could have been fucking around with trees. They could have been like, they could have had fucking nunchucks or something and bashing shit around. That would be my first go-to. But that would then also be to say, I know everything and that's not right either. There is mm. stuff that I cannot explain either. But I feel like if you can ground yourself in some sort of logical thinking, a lot, like almost 99% of everything that happens on the planet is somewhat explainable in some case, right? Talking about uh, all of these conspiracy theories and stuff like that, you know, those people don't necessarily prescribe to the fact that something is explainable. And I think that is problematic. So it's interesting to hear, you know, your thoughts on that. And like, do you, you know, going back and repeating that incident, because as you're thinking, you still get goosebumps about it. There is no explanation for that, right? There is, you obviously will have thought about this many, many times over the years or whatever since then. And I wonder about UFOs and stuff like that. And I wonder, especially considering I joke on the podcast, it's always Americans, right? There is this sense of exaggeration that has to come from creating a story about these things. Australia is more of a ghost country, like... Mm, UK is as well. Um, yeah. And Japan too, right? But in terms of like these alien stories, it's always like, jet pilots right and then i'm always like i look at the dude and i'm like you just love being on tv don't you and that that's my logical explanation about how this could be heightened to the nth degree that person has a certain status in society where they should be deemed a trustworthy person who would have confidential information about x right but no one thinks about well 
what if this person just wants to be on TV? What if this person just wants attention? What if this person is totally fine with lying about something? And then, you know, that's kind of like a very reasonable explanation to me. Not necessarily the correct one, but one that conflicts with, you know, the classified information that gets leaked or something like that, that maybe George thinks is more of a logical explanation than I do. And like, I think it's definitely like, you know, because one of the, I guess, things about that story I told you was like the isolation, I think, is a big part of it because yeah. isolation is that big part yeah. of like the, the yeah. unknown of like, well, did anyone else ever see it? Because it's so far out Yeah, there. you would ne- Yeah, you wouldn't expect to see it, would you? Right. And you're like, well, no one else can corroborate that story. I love the example that this book on Buddhism I was reading uses. And that is when you're hiking through the woods, looking at the ground for snakes, anything that rustles in the bush, like you're rolling a 30% chance of your brain actually creating a false image of a snake until you do a double take and see it's a squirrel or something. And that's normal. That is natural. That is your brain trying to keep you alert and safe. It's a similar phenomenon to to uh, intrusive thought is a false image is what this Buddhist author called it. Then he goes into how Buddhism is about developing the self-control to notice when your brain is... Uh, doing something that your sense of self might be grinding against. Interesting. So I do believe that a lot of people can have earnest, honest sightings and reports that still, even if they're, they did see what they really did see, that are still up to more of a psychological phenomenon. Man, I hate, I, I have a weird question for go, you. Go, go. We, we can keep talking for another hour if you want. I like, can just cut out. Heck the yeah, let's do this. <laughs> What do you think of UFO and alien enthusiasts who think that Aboriginal cave paintings and cliff paintings are showing gray aliens when they are drawing the big-eyed, big-headed Wangina We used to get that question all the time when we were like at the university. And basically, if you ever go talk to, you know, people from that family who, you know, their, their family drew that image you know the, the stories mm-hmm. just never line up because it's it's usually just this whole thing where like for example if you ever watch ancient aliens it's just a show where i hate and love it so much basically like, that show's whole thing is like me going crazy is uh, that, that whole show is basically them saying oh indigenous people weren't smart enough to do anything they had the aliens pick up after them the whole mm-hmm. time like you know it's this whole thing yeah where, they never the parthenon that was never aliens the Colosseum no, no, wasn't yeah. aliens it was just what the other yeah. Stonehenge might be aliens, but those also weren't the like modern population of Britain. So I guess they can have alien help too. Well, yeah, I mean, it's basically basically it's, it's like it's really obvious. It's, it's pretty obvious for stuff like that because, like you know, like one thing I think it was always funny about that ancient alien show is like whenever they had you know indigenous people on there to try and corroborate the story, they would like say half a sentence and then it would cut to like B roll, and then they'd keep talking about another sentence. It was really obvious like they were you know, missing the point of like... like Stitching like, together, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, like some some of that stuff, you know, obviously it's, it's all family specific usually, you know, because connection to land is always going to be different where you're from. Like one of the things, going all the way back to the start of our conversation, like one of the things a lot of Australians don't even know is that not all Aboriginal people are the same. They're all from different tribes. Like, like there's this thing in a lot of like Australians will say is, when are we going to learn the Aboriginal language? It's like, well, mate, there's like 700 of them, eh? You know, and within them, there's like a bunch of different dialects. And that is like all an individual expressionist of human consciousness itself. Well, it's, it's all like tied I, to country and country is different wherever you go. You know, like if your family, you know, and this goes back to the aliens thing, right? If your family lives in a desert, right? 
and there's only white ochre to paint with, you're going to use white ochre, right? And you're going to paint a person that is in white. And everyone's is going to white, go, yeah. yeah. Alien, right? Because I've seen an image that's very similar to that. Let me just find this. This is an image by, I believe his name was Paddy Wembarala. This one here. It's a little bit blocky, but should be fine. I'm just going to put this in the chat here. Now, when you look at that image, this is one of those ones a lot of people turn to, right? Oh, look, there's a there's a big white alien man, right? A big white guy? Well, basically... <laughs> oh, yeah, the, Nord, the Nord aliens. Oh, my yeah, God. Well, sorry, sorry. Well, it's like, it's, I love It's interesting because like, some of these ones are actually... What they actually are is the word has gotten to that tribe or that mob before um, like European explorers have got there. And they've said, hey, watch out. There's some dudes coming and they're going to try and kill you. Like... This is what they did to us. Oh, that's what a big well, white one, guy um, with a sword represents? I'm trying to find this one, and it's basically, you can see in some of the images there's guns. You can see these guys, and they've got caps and guns, right? And it's the same sort of thing because what they're, like, and obviously uh, when the story's told, it's told differently. But, you know, like one of the ones I think of is, I think the image might have been taken down just because the artist has passed away. But the thing I sort of remember was, like, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing where you, one of the funny stories we used to tell students to sort of get them to understand the concept of ontology was the magic rock story, right? Which was basically an anthropologist went up to the Northern Territory in Australia and they said, show me your like customs. And, you know, these Aboriginal people came back with this rock with this painting on it. And they said, this is our most sacred rock that we use to determine, you know, our life and everything like that. And the guy said, oh, how much do you want for it? 50 bucks? Sure, here you go. And he took it away and then more anthropologists came out there and they said, do you have any more artifacts? And they came back with another rock with a painting on it, a little bit different. And they kept getting all these magic rocks, right? And they took them away and they put them in these, you know, museums and had them all sitting there. And what happened was about 60 years later, someone from that family started working at that museum and they said, oh, where'd you get those from? Oh, we got them from here. This is the stone of creation or something like that and she said no that was all bullshit we told you guys because you wouldn't fuck off like we had to get you to to go away and that, that story that story no, got passed marketing. down they said when these guys come you can get 50 bucks out of them for a rock with some paint on it and it was this sort of thing where basically like when you see a lot of that stuff it's like like I, honestly i just take it with a grain of salt because sometimes it's the kind of thing where like a lot of families it's, so, yeah, exactly. So this goes back to yeah. my logical explanation thing, right? Like that is kind of what I'm thinking, right? Oh, there must be something that ex- very simply explains what has happened, even if it's well, illogical. You know, the, way we, the way we would explain that to students is this is, you know, it's not possible to not have an ontology, right? The way you see the world. When a lot of these anthropologists would come to community, they would see them as the lesser primitive that you know, wouldn't understand the concept of value and you could take them for a ride. And in reality, it was, okay, word's gotten around because one of the other things about Australia is by the time European people got to the Northern Territory and did all their discovery or whatever, it, it was like 1950 and, you know, word had gotten around. <laughs> this is what's going on, guys. Be aware when they come to you. And so if you don't laugh about it, you cry. And like a lot of these families, that was their way of saying, we're going to stop this stuff 
that we actually hold really sacred to us from getting into, you know, museums and being taken away. Because, like, there's a lot of really nasty stuff there. But it's one of those things because, like, there are certain stories that do talk about, like, like I'm thinking, you know, Maori stories. There's certain Maori stories that talk about people from up there and stuff, you know. And are those stories just scare kids? What well, really depends who, like, what layer of the story you're on uh, in terms of, like, if you're being told that story as, like, a little kid, it might actually be a story about, like, you know, sharing or something like that. So, yeah. One of my favorite examples of this happening is the Lost Franklin Expedition, where a crew of a, of a European explorer group who were exploring the Arctic ended up uh, losing um, themselves. They resorted to cannibalism and they all died. And they ended up finding the remains of these uh, guys in like 2010 or something. But by the time they had found them, the local Inuits, uh, the local indigenous people who still lived out in the tundra had already developed an oral tradition of this story of foolish white people who went where they shouldn't go because there's ice in the way. And an Inuit historian ended up working with the search crew to find them. So like there, there are still all these examples of how ancient storytelling techniques are still can still be a powerful way of recording information. And that's that's why I think I'm so fascinated by it, is because now you see that happening in the high-tech community of white people on the internet who are developing like this graft between recorded history and oral history and mythology. Like It is living mythology right in front of all of us is what's happening right now in places where it usually wouldn't. As a guy who went to school for journalism and like studied the, the history of how different people think depending on how different their media is, I totally think stuff like this is why I'm simultaneously so fascinated by aliens and ancient history and journalism and electronic media and modern misinformation. It's one of those things where like how how the story gets sort of interpreted by the person. Because like one of the things I think that's indigenous people we always find a little bit condescending is when like, you know, we'll say something sacred and people will be like, whoa, really? Like, and then it's like, well, what do you consider like, I don't know, your like your your mum's like not your mum, sorry, I won't say that. Like your great granddad's grave or like, you know, your your like maybe a Bible mm. that got handed down through the family or something, or going to church yeah. or something. It's like that's sacred to you, isn't it? And it's like it's just one of those things, eh, where sometimes when people cause on top of that, usually it's sort of maybe it's lost in translation or something, you know, with some groups where they speak six languages before they speak English and the word sacred is like the closest word that comes to once again, going back to the idea of memes, you know, their word for that in culture. And it's sort of like, I think it's 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 one of those things where, I don't know, I'm, I'm always a little interested by it. Like, I'm always interested about that with, like, cryptids in general, eh? Because, like, sometimes it's this whole thing where a lot of the UFO confirmers or whatever, or, you know, cryptid confirmers will look to, you know, indigenous storytelling or something to, see, see, there it is, it's real, like, you know what I mean? And and maybe they don't even, like, talk to, yeah. you know, the group where that sort of story's from. They'll look at, say, like, stories, yeah. you know, one paragraph long and it was in a, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica in the 1800s where the entire purpose of that book was, you know, to sort of disenfranchise an entire population, you know. So, like, it's, it's just one of those things where you have to go, like, maybe, like, uh I don't know. <laughs> I think one of the things that has been absolutely historically lost on the Western historical memory is the period when they themselves were the indigenous people living in the a more natural world with more oral storytelling. And these cave drawings of an Aboriginal mythological 
figure called the Wangina that supposedly came down from the sky to teach them language and culture and civilization. And that is more or less the same story of, of Prometheus previous generations of like Nephilim and angels who would come down in the the more Christian Judeo-Christian mythologies. There are versions of this stuff. I think there is a a beauty that is to be seen from how different cultures all in different parts of the planets are still fascinated by things like our eyes and our big heads and how any sort of drawing of a creature with big eyes and big heads ends up being something that latches on to people on a subconscious level that also digs into these tempting human thoughts of not wanting to be the only people in the universe, maybe because we're social creatures that are kind of sort of have our bodies built to be walking around all day with your friends and family and your group with you. You don't want to be alone. It's, it sucks being alone. Do we have time to talk about apolitical freedom revolution power fantasy, colon, hang on, I actually wrote down the full title here. A political freedom revolution power fantasy. We're using leftist imagery, but no one wants to talk about that, right? A Ubisoft original <laughs> six. <laughs> Far Cry six went through the motions as as so often as it does. And on this podcast, we I think had our most recent is the Ubisoft game political or not conversation when they were doing a Tom Clancy. Oh, I don't remember what adjective came after Tom Clancy. Breakpoint? There was that wasn't there that mobile Die. game where it was like really distasteful? Yeah, it was the mobile. Where it was like, one. oh, go and yeah. kill a bunch of the, protesters the, or something. The raised Yeah, with the raised black fist as like the uh symbol of the yeah. evil group in uh And and those are the terrorists and, and it looks like a more kid friendly cartoony version of the typically very gritty hard in like a- Tom Clancy games. Yeah, Far Cry Six got revealed. There was a interview with um, the game's narrative director saying that they're not trying to make a political statement about Cuba in particular. Although the game is using the imagery of old 1950s cars souped up with modern equipment in a country that is an island that has Spanish colonial architecture and everyone speaking in the appropriate accent. There were some outlets who shared that quote and dunked on it. The very next day, there was a longer quote from the developer stressing that, like, it's not Cuba in particular. We're actually, like, like trying to damage control in a way that's, like, debatably a little different than usual. I'm going to read the actual quotes instead of trying to make a mirror out of my own understanding of this thing. In the gameplay presentation that uh, was released as a trailer, a narrator says... Every aspect of the game has been designed to make you feel like a guerrilla fighter, battling an asymmetric war against Anton, the charismatic Far Cry villain this time, and his army. The guerrilla fantasy is all about making one guerrilla feel like a thousand. Some people wanted to question the use of the word fantasy after after guerrilla and, and the idea of a game making you feel like a guerrilla fighter. The game's narrative director had this interview where he I, said... I just hope they have the, uh, what is it, the, the mini game from Jackbox where you get to make a shirt so that you get to have, like, everyone makes a face and then they have the, like, quote below it, you know? Like, everyone has their fake Che Guevara. <laughs> a little mini game like that in there. <laughs> that's the that's the gorilla <laughs> fantasy, George's you know? face from this show on it. Sorry, keep going, George. <laughs> <laughs> the word guerrilla fantasy also sounds like a great game I played last yeah, year. Yeah, I was just going to say. Kind of yeah. <laughs> the, I it love sounds games like the about guerrilla game. fantasies. That, that, that really sounds like my jam. I'm actually surprised that game didn't like 
blow up more with like the monkey meme being so popular right now. Like people aren't just like buying that to be like, oh, monkey, monkey, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen some monkey memes associated with the game on, on uh, Slash Our Ancestors. They pop up some sometimes. It has sold people, a million people. copies. It ain't no... It ain't no flop. It sold a million coffees. It's it, and I. I also I feel like I pointed it out. You before, did literally last week. Not Steam shard and look at the line. It's uh, <laughs> it, it does roughly correlate with uh, a video I might have made. Anyways, narrative director Navid Kavari says the original inspiration was guerrilla warfare and what is that guerrilla fantasy, which is obviously tied to revolution. When you talk about guerrillas, you talk about the guerrillas in the 1950s and 1960s. We actually went down there to speak to actual guerrilla fighters who fought back then, and we just really fell in love with their stories. But we also fell in love with the culture and people we met. When we came out of that, it wasn't that we felt we had to do Cuba. We realized it's a complicated island, and our game doesn't want to make a political statement about what's happening in Cuba specifically. Beyond that, we're drawing inspiration from guerrilla movements around the world and throughout history. For us, it felt like doing the island of Yara would help us tell that story while being very open with our politics and inspiration. Mm. I have something to say, but keep going and uh, like, mm. like finish that off. There was a lot said and dunking, so he felt the need the next day to write a blog post on Ubisoft's news post site about this with his name at the bottom. Our story is political. A story about a modern revolution must be. There are hard, relevant discussions in Far Cry 6 about the conditions that lead to the rise of fascism in a nation, the cost of imperialism, forced labor, the need for free and fair elections, LGBTQ rights, and more, call now, and more within the context of Yara, a fictional island in the Caribbean. We tried to be very careful about how we approached our inspirations, which include Cuba, but also other countries around the world. We made sure to seek creators and collaborators from our team who can speak personally to the history and cultures. We brought on experts and consultants. It is not for me to decide if we succeed, but I can say we absolutely tried. So the question here is, is this going to be a different use of the Far Cry brand's appropriation of real-life political tragedies? Is this going to be a different use of, of them appropriating that imagery, or is this still going to be the same old AAA fence setting? I would say... Why would we expect them to do it any different this time? Like in terms of, they've never done it right. <laughs> like, like my thinking is just sort of like I'm not responsible for their optics, but like if every time they've said they're going to do, what is it? We absolutely tried. Whenever I hear that, it's always like, don't get angry at me if like it didn't work, because like it's just sort of this thing where like I think of pretty much every modern Far Cry game where they're all kind of like. I guess they try to tackle some kind of political thing, but then they just sort of like throw that to the side to have like a generic 80s like villain plot, you know, where it's like, go and kill the guy. Yes, absolutely. It was a real, especially big, big, glaringly obvious elephant in the room with Far Cry 5, where the, the villains were stylistically appropriating the uniform and fashion and body language and rhetoric of white nationalists, but they ended up not really doing anything with that. And I wonder like, what the fights behind the scenes were like when they were putting that together and making the decisions they made to go to something that, that, that does sting so hard and so personally for the American audience, but not try to tell a meaningful message about the American audience. You'll have process. to take my word for this, but I did have a conversation with someone who claims that they were sort of close to the group writing that. And apparently they, once again, they tried, 
but it got pulled back or something. Now I'm not too familiar with like if that person was like able to like you know honestly you're gonna have to just like take this all with a grain of salt. But I do remember having a conversation with someone who actually did put out a game this year, and they were telling me something to the effect of when Far Cry Five was being made, there were a lot of people who did want to push it, but it all got you know pulled back or whatever. Mm-hmm. I I yeah would not be surprised and would basically love to hear my my um. My thinking is, okay, there's always going to be that weird overreach in the AAA space because at the end of the day, they're always about shipping units, right? And like the thing the thing I kind of... Th- yeah, they're not incentivized. Well, okay, here's my thing is they're incentivized to do, push it in the way where like idiots will cover it in terms of like, uh, and I don't mean that in terms of saying game journal CD. I'm talking about YouTube talking heads that are like, you know how like gaming media has sort of split now where you've got your traditional game journalist critic and now you've got your internet game journalist critic. Oh, I, I painfully and, and I don't know mean what you're talking like, about. George, yes. I mean like the people who have no journalist training whatsoever, right? And they basically like whatever's written on the press release, they'll go, yeah, that yeah. sounds about right. Which as someone who's written a press release, they, well, they look, affect as someone my who's life. written a press release, I can tell you 100% confidently, whatever I wrote on that press release is what went into the article verbatim, right? There was no like, you, mm-hmm. you know, everyone, but, but that's the take your word on. Okay. And the thing I kind of think is that like those people yes. who are not trained very well at like being able to decipher when they're being taken for a ride. Like I remember when Far Cry 5 came out and Far Cry 5 was just sort of like, if you were to talk like gameplay wise, it's not really that different other than there's less animations when you go to like harvest shit out of things. Right. You know, instead of doing the first person animation, it just goes into your inventory. But I remember those people like bumping it up to like a nine out of 10 because there was one part in it where one of the characters said Obama loving libtard. They were like, this game, this game just gets humor. It's, you know, I'm just like, I I feel like they, what? Even though like the people who say that are the kinds who are being parodied is the, 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 yeah, the and it's just villain. like this whole thing yeah. where where basically like yeah. I feel as oh if my God. uh you know when it comes to the end of the day, some number cruncher there went like, uh, oh, what do we do? What do we do? Um let's remove it and then we'll balance it back out so that any controversy pre-launch is like washed out or something. Because like I, I honestly I think like if you're doing a thing about Cuba, most how do I say American, but not American? Like most Americans sort of believe that, uh, <laughs> you know, Fidel Castro was the dictator, not Batista, the regime before that. Uh, like they think that because, right. you know, Fidel Castro has like died in office or something, he must have done that by force. And like, I'm honestly not super familiar with the Cuban revolution post like the stuff in the 60s, but I do know that like, the approval rating for Che was quite good. Uh, not Che, um, Fidel was quite good because he like did a lot of the, you know, like putting hospitals everywhere and giving everyone education and all this stuff that they didn't have before. And like, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying like you, you can't be critical of Cuba or anything, but I think like it's interesting that this game basically has the like US foreign policy idea of what a, you know, quote unquote shithole, you know, Latin American country is, right? Like it's, it's pretty obvious that's what they're going for, like within all the trailers and that. Like, it's not like they're going. Like, I just find it a bit suspicious. The guy says, "We're like, we fell in love with the culture," but then you see it, and it's you go. I am extremely afraid of the thing he said one sentence before, where he said they, they fell in love Ooh, with their yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Like I like that 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 that's a little goosebumps. Anyone else getting the I always think about that think in about? terms of like you have people telling the stories from someone, but like and especially with a creative work, they'll make you know, deviations where like they'll they'll take yeah. They'll, they'll take it somewhere and then they'll return it back around to be the point they wanted to make in the first place, which I think love can be irrational. Very irrational. Irrational. Wasn't it in Far Cry 5, you come up with like, there's a guy who's like, oh, I'm a veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder. And then he, he's talking about... <sighs> I, I played it for like two days. Oh, not a real reviewer here. No. <laughs> I... I really bounced off of that game. I played it just enough to to sate my curiosity of knowing how limp it was in its usage of the zeitgeist of the times. I had a friend who's like a Twitch streamer and he bought a helicopter in that game and finished the whole game in two hours because it just wasn't balanced around, you know, be you being in a helicopter and just just, just diving, bombing everything. And like, he just, he, he would just fly <laughs> around the map for like 30 minutes, like kill all the outposts. And then he would like, you know, like with those games, you only had to like fill a meter and then like they filled the meter and then he just did the like boring, the boring story the freedom section. Meter. Yeah, and even that, like, meter. I, I feel like that's something also where if they're talking about revolution and that, it's like one thing I think, which is like kind of something interesting that I mean, like I'm not being like, oh, yeah, I'm the gaming mastermind or anything, but like if I was to make some sort of like, you know, a political freedom simulator or whatever, like one of the things I think that a lot of people miss about all those revolutions is it always starts with reading circles, like where the, the revolution doesn't happen with like some guy being like, yeah, we need to get them. It's getting the populace educated first so that they can realize what they're actually trying to get. Like, you know, w- one thing I think that's pretty interesting now is that like, there's a lot of people starting to read like anti-capitalist literature or like, you know, Michael Parenti's works and stuff like that, or, or just like, you know, not getting the nationalist version of what Marxism is, like actually going to the source and like reading that or something, you know what I mean? And it's like, I feel like that's the most dangerous thing uh, for like a, you know, a fascist regime is like an educated populace because the moment the populace is starting to become educated and like getting their own agency on something, it's like really hard to, for, for them to, to, to control that. That's what, that's like kind of why fascist mm. regimes and that their nation building is all built around like, very rigid identities you know like every fascist regime oh you know in the last what 50 years it's usually like the religion is one thing the you know identity of what men are are one thing the identity of what women are are one thing and it's like if they can make homogenous citizens around that they can just like move that as a block so easily but like you know the moment people start to get educated and they start to question that that's when it gets all rocky for him, you know? They notice where they are in the hierarchy they love so much. I, d- I, don't, I don't know how you can... I mean, I don't want to drag this out too long because I feel like it's feeding air into something ridiculous. I don't know how you can say a statement like, we fell in love with their stories and then say something like, it's not political. Like, Especially what? if they're the like, where, original where do those, group. Where do the stories yeah. come from? Yeah, like... Where do those stories come from that isn't based in some sort of political stance regarding Cubans or, or, or such, right? And why did you fall in love? Where did that come from, too? Was it exciting? What is the, you know, was it about an ideology? Was it... Uh, why does it excite you? Why does it... Why will it excite ideology? players? What is the driving force 
for the player, well, it's to take down this fascist dictator. Is that not in itself a predictable political move, right? Revolution being one of the most political things you possibly could face as a race or group of people. Why would a mass market audience where where the the largest amount of sales they'll make are going to be in America, why did they find the imagery and the fantasy of, yeah, why did they find revolution a fantasy rather than a tragedy? Because it's so distant in history. It's been mythologized in American mindsets to the point where uh, when when you think of revolutions nowadays, it feels like a a nasty modern thing that happens when systems fail. But when you're a kid reading American history, (laughs) they hype it up like the... So if if the analogy is as valid as I think it is, they do hype it up like our version of the Trojan War. That is what your big, strong ancestors who were hardier and, and rougher than people are nowadays were doing. They took on the, the largest empire in the world in one. And, and then you realize that, that they were like a small theater and a much bigger so conflict. I that's funny they're saying like, we took on the biggest empire in the world, but then they'll never give that same, um, you know, charity to someone like Vietnam, you know, or like Russia or something like that. (laughs) And they don't see themselves as the big empire now. You know, when you're a kid reading about American history, colonialism is the bad guy. And then when you're a a teenager reading about modern American history, uh, colonialism is just kind of thrown in. But there aren't discussion questions at the end of the chapter about why America was then transforming into the why are you becoming the thing you were supposed to hate so much? How did we end up in Hawaii? Um, Don't ask. There's a really great uh, lecture by Michael Perenni where he talks about the darker myths of empire, and he talks about this really interesting thing that you see in sort of American foreign policy, where they say, "Oh no, we don't have colonies; we have territories." <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's yeah, just like this rebranding of. Oh no, no, we're not like that. We've got this thing. <laughs> I don't know. There's another really good question I want to ask you guys. As game developers, do you think it is ethical to interview real-life soldiers about real-life violence when uh, making a fun power fantasy entertainment AAA product that's going to be consumed by a massive audience of lowest common denominators, especially when you have publishers and shareholders pushing you to make it as sanitary as possible, even though you have nasty-as-hell source material? It's an interesting question because not only are we game developers, I'm a British man, and Tala is an Australian. Mosey, so it's Maori like, Mosey. <laughs> yeah, most of this, most of the video games that tend to touch on these subjects, let's say Six Days of Fallujah, whatever, right, is an American. Yeah, another example is an entirely American thing, right? There isn't a game about. I mean, there are, you know, let's say, you know, you can't get away from Call of Duty has McTavish or whatever. There are British elements to it, but it's very much in that American patriotic military imagery and is made by American developers. Well, don't also forget that a lot of the times those games are also funded by the U.S. Army. Yeah. And on paper and taxes, they're made in an empty office in, uh, in Holland or Bermuda or somewhere. I don't know, because I just wouldn't ever make a game like that. So it's so hard for me to even comprehend the idea that someone would push me to do that. I would say it's really interesting. Like, just I'm starting to think I get what you guys are talking about for. They're saying, we loved hearing their stories, and then they say it's not political. 
But it's like the way I think about that is, especially just thinking about six days in Fallujah, it's like if with six days in Fallujah, they are taking these supposed real accounts of soldiers. And then, you know, didn't they say that one wasn't political as well? Which is like, get the fuck out of here. It was like, yeah, they weren't trying to take a political side is what they said. US soldiers that have been like indoctrinated into thinking that they're like over there to kick Saddam's ass or whatever. It's like, like, like how is that not taking a political side in, in, in that conflict? If you're but like uh, one mm. documentary I, I always think about is um, that Ken Burns Vietnam War one. I think one of the reasons that's one of the better ones is because they talk to Vietnamese soldiers as well. And you can just see that the shared relationship between those soldiers is the thing that war's fucking shit, right? And they're both talking about... It's just shit for everyone. Everyone. Both sides. It's it's like you leading into that was immediately making me think of like when you had American soldiers or British soldiers meet German or Austrian or Polish soldiers from the other side on the, you know, they meet in that old man and they're just like, yeah, man, this is fucking awful. You know, I was up there, you were down here. And I, it goes back weirdly for me, that logical thing in my head. Like I am someone who finds it hard not to put myself in someone else's shoes. I feel guilty you know, uh, if I think about someone else, uh, you know, it's empathy, I guess, but I find it really hard not to imagine what it's like to be that other person and, you know, how everyone's the main character of their own story and the idea that a person is both a father or a mother or a daughter or a son or the, the husband of somebody. And they, alongside you, have this tangentially spinning web of a life, right? And the fact that you could go to war and not imagine the same for the other side of something just because they're fighting for an ideal that clashes with the overlighting bosses of your ideal is mad to me. I I can't I can't fathom it. So the idea that in that kind of position, if you were this, I'm gonna use the horrible word centrist, you know, you're discussing a story about two sides and how you could only focus on one side. You only have one specific idea in mind, and that is to push an agenda of something that suits what you think. And therefore you are taking a political stance by doing so. You can totally say my game is not, I'm not taking a political side if you are, in fact, interviewing both sides about what was the issues Facing, you know, we were told by our, you know, higher ups that this and they were told this and, uh, you know, we did this and they did that. Okay, fair enough. But when you are actively like, we're going to just interview American soldiers about like the tactics they use, the weapons they used, the, you know, their fears and what they were thinking and then not discuss what was this other side. then you are already without even opening your mouth, taking a political stance. In in the Fallujah interviews and materials, like one of the bullet points you'll see is uh, based on interviews from both sides. But yep. when you watch that gameplay video, there's a hell of a lot more of when when they interview the other side. It's like half a sentence of of someone talking, yeah. uh, the disembodied Black voice face, talking over yeah. footage because they don't want to show his face. Like like they can't, they they cannot make and sell a popular product that actually plays to the side that's not the one the audit the most of the audience is going to be on like it's 
It's against the rules of capitalism. Can I, can I just say something that, like, it's a little bit related to this, was just going back to this idea that, you know, like, uh, a lot of these people try to say that gamers aren't politically active or whatever. One of the things I did, or we've all played first-person shooters on PC, so we've always had that, you know, that dork who's left his mic chat on and he's got his SJW cringe compilation playing through this, the microphone or whatever, and you just yelling at him to shut up. But one of the things I remember doing was when... Trump lost the election. I went on to Rising Storm Two Vietnam, and I just kept asking America. Oh yeah, yeah no, I just, I just asked. No, no, I just asked the question. I went to American service specifically. So I had like four hundred ping, and I just, oh, I just yeah. said, "It's a discussion oh, hey guys, I was we're out, having." I was out camping on the weekend. Who won open. the election? Donald Trump. Oh really? Oh, how would he win? And and it was this whole thing where these supposedly apolitical gamers had this entire fucking constructed web of all this crap and like it, you know it, <laughs> like a, well, no, they, a text file in the corner of their no, screen well, they had, they ready had the to full, fucking like, go oh no the voting machines rigged you got to go watch the footage oh you got to do it. like God. all the all the all the political talking points right? ready to go and like it was a it was a great time because i i was just like obviously i was just trolling them and like it was the sort of thing where i would ask them questions and eventually i got one of them to believe that there was a vietnam war too because i said Oh yeah, after America, you guys lost it. We Australia had to go and do it more, and and they were like, yeah, exactly. That's why we're right. Like, and it's just this this thing, eh? Where I feel like with games like that, if you're not like, because Vietnam, I think Rising Storm Two Vietnam is probably one of the better Vietnam War games because it kind of just shows the brutality of war, like really just in the gameplay. I don't know if you've played it, but like, mm. you know, it's the kind of thing where when you're playing as the like Vietnamese sides, they're not like, you know rice farmers in pith hats or whatever they're actual you know got uniforms and soldiers and whatever but yeah i just think it's it's interesting like i I, like when i saw that six days in fallujah i was really reminded of um the uh what was it called operation flashpoint games eh? which they did the same thing where they like i think it was red river they did like oh no this doesn't take place in afghanistan it takes place in tajikistan but it's you know, like one of the things I remember about that game was like, if you look really closely at the, you know, enemy combatant's face, it's like the guy has like bloodshot eyes and like a really angry stare and stuff. And it's like really, it's really obvious mm. what they're, they're, they're trying to do with these, you, you know, yeah. enemy combatants or whatever is, is, is they're, they're scary, yeah. you know? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Red Orchestra is famous for like having the soldiers like cry for their moms. Like re- the thing that I keep seeing in reference to those games is they really made the the soldier oh yeah voice lines terrifying. Like like apparently they I, and I don't I, I I don't know how I I feel about that in the grand scheme well, of that things because. Uh... I'm I'm all, all all about like like games as interactive storytelling experiences, which can also mean games as interactive documentary. And so, hearing a gamer broadcast their SJW cringe compilation over a digital reenactment of World War II that tries to get so edgy and honest about it that it has the soldiers screaming for their moms as they're dying instead of just ragdolling and that with no blood, you know, like like a more popular game. I really, something in my soul would find the juxtaposition between that audio is fighting, those two audios fighting each other distasteful. Like I would, 
I would feel gross as as someone who like grew up here in grandpa's World War II stories. I would not be able to disassociate those memories from how jarringly out of place an SJW cringe compilation would be over a digital documentary reenactment of shit that I I know real people I'm personally connected with have gone through. Like it's it's the human aspect of it grating against the the inhuman monstrosity of the the SJW cringe compilation. Do do you know what's so interesting about that is I've actually heard that story more than once now, eh? Of people saying like, you know, usually it's like, look, I I have a few friends that, you know, probably were into like the sort of gamer stuff a couple of years back, but they've said like, you know, I can't imagine how shameful it would have been if like my grandfather had seen me like listening to this bullshit or something or saying this kind of stuff because right. it's just that whole thing right. of like yeah it's just it's it's such a like like i think one of the things that's really interesting is i was talking to a friend of mine that they, they were like sort of connected with like armor and stuff like that like not they made it they were just like someone who did a lot of it and you know it was this sort of thing where like you know these games that are these military simulation sandboxes and stuff you would always get these people who would be attracted to playing those games who were just like fully into nazi shit and like you know what I mean? They would be playing like, you know, a, a World War II reenactment map or something like that. It's a big problem in the Paradox, Paradox. Games forums. Like, I I do not envy those moderators. They do the Europa Universalis. Hearts of Iron is the one that especially appealed to, let's call them World War II enthusiasts. Victoria, uh, a lot of games that do have that option for making an alternative white supremacist history are games that paradox has the unfortunate burden of of using as their theaters for their settings and the forum culture on there did get really really fashy over the years and there were some news stories about the moderation efforts that they're trying i don't know if that's still going on in the paradox subculture but yeah i was just just imagining like if they they tried to make their games like you know less fashy like maybe they had a game that was about like you know like uh, I, I don't know like maybe it was just about like i don't know the civil rights or something like that they'd be like these games have gotten too political but it's like you know i'm just looking at some of the covers they're like what crusader kings europa universe or something like heart like all this stuff it's political games were you you basically spend the yeah. game looking at a map of europe with some of the blobs getting bigger and smaller based on how much <laughs> currency is flowing oh, in and out God. of the blob yeah, well, it is a nationalism, colonialism simulator. That is the crux of the gameplay. But, but if that's your default worldview, you're not going to notice it. Should we move straight on to audience questions? You're better at this <laughs> podcast than we are. I was Jeez, once a YouTuber, but I just got too good. You're at good. It. At, <laughs> you're yeah. No, I, you're I, really I, I good. Like we of, have zero I had a bunch of YouTube whatsoever. videos and stuff, but I actually had to unlist them recently because like. As the game companies sort of moving more into like a company structure, it's like, you know, game, yeah. game. Oh, it's you like, don't you want know, that baggage. Game companies, if they see like <laughs> you someone, you know, use a bit of their well, music or something and it's like an individual, they'll let it slide. But if it's like, oh, it's a business, <laughs> yeah, you know, like take these guys. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, it was yeah. it was a copyright thing, um, right? Yeah. I wonder, is that because the name Veselikov might be on the Umerangi label uh, 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 and the Steam artwork, like part of the branding of the product? Yeah, no, no, no. Like, I'm I'm basically just taking precautions. Because, like, you know, like, when I made that stuff, I was like, you know, like, for example, I made the Dark Souls 2 Rogue Warrior thing, right? Which is, you know, like, it was pretty loved by the community. And, like, I, it's funny, like, 
one of the reasons yeah. I actually sort of moved to making games is because I realized I was putting like the amount of effort it would be to like make something original into something that wasn't even like something I own. Like with that Dark Souls Rogue Warrior thing, I've written like five episodes where it was like, you know, because it was just like an 80s bullshit thing. It was like, oh, what if like the pursuer was like one of his old comrades and he'd been taken over by Manus and, you know, that's why he pursued him because he was like trying to be like, you gotta help me, bro. And, you know, I was like, write all this bullshit. And then I was like, I don't want to fucking do this. Like, this is this is someone else's IP. You just spend this yeah. energy making an <laughs> actual much. video game. Like, <laughs> Instead yeah. of and, content and I guess the creation. other thing is like, you know, going back to that whole thing with that studio, it's like, you know, you're, you know, you don't want to be stuck in the thing where like your fans are people who want things that you don't want to do. Like, you know, George, you've probably been in that scenario where I'm pretty sure you made a video that was about like journalistic literacy and you probably got a bunch of flack with people being like, whoa, Mm-hmm. He was a he was a SJW yep. all along or something, right? Yep. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Several people said they were going to unsubscribe, but according to the numbers, it still wasn't enough. But anyways, yeah, uh, yeah. It was it was that was ninety minutes. That one really hurt. But anyways, <laughs> that one like really really burnt me out. I wonder if I can. Do I do like think it's a ninety minute though. video like, ever again. I honestly think you know a lot of that stuff like. I mean, I probably shouldn't disclose this. So I had a chat with, you know, H Bomber guy and he was talking about, you know, one of his big projects he was working on was teaching people journalistic literacy as well, because he said that's what one of the most important things at this point is, I think. Like, like I think that's what he was kind of going yes. into the sort of point of, yeah. And and they're they're teaching it in the schools and these that's days. That's always too. like, a, oh, I hope that gets taught right, eh? Because like one of the things I think, which is the hardest thing to get someone out of, is if they get taught it wrong, and then you have to tell them, no, you were kind of right, but you're wrong still. Yeah, you have all well, these like, bad habits. Like, uh, you know, the whole Gamergate thing where they're saying ethics and journalism, ethics and journalism, right? And you have all these people thinking they understand what that means when, you know, and the reality is like that that like they've been taught what that concept is wrong. And like when they go to actually figure out what that means, you know what I mean? It's like, Oh yeah. The review. Yeah. Everyone says there was a review. Someone reviewed a game they shouldn't yeah. have been doing. And that never happened. It never and, did. Uh, well, if that's you the important thing. It, you wouldn't yeah. have gotten anything. And that's the important thing. Cause you can't then turn around and tell these people, well, that did, just didn't happen. They're like, well, you know, ethics and journalism could happen. Like, yeah. And you've obviously heard that term, objective critique. You know, you can't be subjective in your reviews. It's all opinion, right? But it's like, you know, if you if you have like any form of like what, just writing training, you know, you know that it's like what objective writing is like what, IKEA furniture instructions or something. Eh? And it's like, you know, it's just this presumption would be science, but that changes well, like over the that, times you know, too. Like, um, what, there's a guy uh, who runs this thing called Life After Hate. He's an ex-neo-Nazi uh, from the 90s. And he, he runs this thing where he became de-radicalized. And he said, I need to run a thing to get people out of radicalization. Because when he was there in the 90s, he said, all of the stuff that they were planning for was about re-marketing or re-changing the image of white nationalism. And that's where he said all this, like, you know, the 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 suits and the haircuts come from, because it's this whole thing where they've repositioned it as this intellectual movement. So when they say things, like, one of the things I find is really interesting, eh, is like, you have all these fascists who are against political correctness, but now you're starting to see them actually use social science and, like, politically correct terms for why they should have their ethno state, you know what I mean? And it's this whole thing where they're trying to use that to sort of like get on the definition for people early. So like if someone oh, says, yeah. like, for example, free speech, right? 
and, and we've, we've all heard what people think free speech means, but you know what I mean? Like, like it's this whole thing where they think like, oh no, I should be allowed to say whatever the fuck and it's I like, want. Like, you know, the reality is yeah. you're responsible for your own optics, dude. If someone doesn't want to hire you because you said that. Sorry, go George. An excellent example of that happening right now as we're recording this is the debate over yeah, exactly. critical race theory. No one called it critical race theory until right-wing conservatives looked into academia and noticed history lessons that were focused on racism and combined that word critical theory with critical race theory. And all of a sudden you have an an anti-intellectual conservative backlash against academic higher education, which is old as dirt and has been happening ever since the Catholic Church was trying to censor the scientists. But using those three words, critical race theory, makes it sound like you're trying to offer people an even more critical theory on your view of history and education and the narratives to pass down to the next generation. It's fucked, eh? Like, anyway, I'm aware we should probably get to these questions, but I I, I think this was... was Hey! (laughs) I want to keep on continuing the use of A, even after we have (laughs) Talai leave... I just like that we add that to the end of every. Have oh, I just been saying A too on. much? Hey. <laughs> fucking hell! <laughs> yeah, no, it's brilliant. It's that it's that Aussie like kicking no, it's through. Than it's um, fucking right? great. Uh, I assume so good. um, or like. Mm, like. Oh, yeah. I use like too much. Yeah. Oh, it's like this. Oh, I, do you remember like this? Oh. Yeah. It's all the time. Oh fuck! Gee, oh, <laughs> oh, you're stabbing me. Oh. That was a weird jiggle you did there, George. All right. Hey, anyone listening right now? Can you even crikey in the comments? Read the damn question. No. (laughs) (laughs) Editor, put a cranky in there. If you'd like to talk to your mates, that's the slang, right? Send in an email to dadandsonspodcast@gmail.com or post it in the listeners' questions channel of the Patreon. We pull from both every episode. We got a couple serious ones and a couple fun ones this week. First, uh, first serious one is from Chemo Force. With the recent release of Returnal, video game difficulty discussion has resurgenced in all its ugliness. However, there was something related to the topic that doesn't get discussed often, and it's when a game locks you out of content for playing on the easier difficulty. Which apparently Cuphead does, since you have to beat every level on the normal difficulty, otherwise you're locked out of the two final bosses. To me, not even bothering to put in an easier difficulty is way more honest than putting in one that doesn't let me play a game till the end, I feel like I'm having my time wasted and have been misled by the game into thinking that playing on easy was perfectly okay. This was more of a phenomenon in the 90s, but nowadays, considering that Cuphead brought back the idea, I think we should discuss it. So what do you feel about games locking you out of content based on difficulty? I think that's pretty shitty. You're almost punishing players just because they don't have a certain skill level, even if that skill level is not necessarily built upon skill. It could be disability... It could be the inability to play at certain levels. I don't think that's very good. I think there is something to the tune of you should reward players for sticking with your game, though. And this is going to the wrong way around it. But players who generally will stick with your game will be the best players of that game. And they will want to be challenged consistently over a period of time. Therefore, having unlockable content behind meaning certain requirements or certain goals within a game, I think is totally okay. And sometimes that comes in the form of difficulty. So if you beat a game on the highest difficulty, therefore you unlock X amount of content. But to hide 
main content, like your final bosses behind just one specific mode, seems pretty terrible uh, of a design choice. And those cool, quite rightly annoyed some players. Difficulty is a weird one. I don't know about you, Talai, but like uh, I have a question. You you made you made a game that yeah, doesn't like, really have like any. All the, like if you it's really want to put of, the hard effort in, you get bonus equipment. But like even then, you can just look up a guide. I, I have a question: hmm. Is there like a bit of bonus content in Doom Eternal that if you beat that on Ultra Nightmare, you get to be a giant fucking prick all of a sudden? Because I have no idea why, but every fuckhead online who talks about that game's Ultra Nightmare difficulty. Thinks they're like king shit, eh? And like they just won't shut the fuck up about it, eh? <laughs> I'm getting the impression that you and I spend way too much time reading shit on the internet. Over their first dates, he uh, reads marks. <laughs> 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 Is it just because they have that one enemy? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, what is it? The Marauder? That is meant to be like the most bullshit enemy in the world. So maybe if you were able to beat the Marauder on that difficulty, yeah. you do feel it's like really you're looking funny. Shit, I think that maybe. Doom Eternal has brought out the worst in that community because, like, basically they have two jokes. Like, well, I guess they have three jokes because they all use the fucking attack helicopter joke as well. But like, it's like game journalists bad at Doom. That's one of their jokes. And then the other joke is Doom guy is angry, and that's like their three jokes that they'll just alternate. Between for personality, but anyway, uh, to answer the question, I guess I think like if you're a game developer and you do that, like don't be upset if then people say like, oh, like I'm not going to play the game again, like I'm going to not do it, like 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 hundred percent, hundred percent, like it's it might seem like a design thing, but I think like probably the best way i can think that like doing that would 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 work is like cosmetics, like you know the thing I kind of think was like I played a bit of Resident Evil 2 remake the other day. And like, if you beat that on the higher diff or get an S rank, sorry, you know, you get, you get like a, the unlimited samurai edge, right. Or, and, and you get like better unlocks if you, if you do put in the time, but it doesn't take away from the yeah. fact that like you still get the, you know, Resident Evil 2 remake experience if you just play through the game. So like, I guess, I, yeah, I guess my thinking is just exactly like, right. Higher difficulties. Yeah. You can reward people, but I think locking people out of like, the experience is kind of like the core experience you want people to actually go for. I mean, but then, then again, I'm like, I'm like trying to think of like Dark Souls technically does that, but it doesn't really because it's like with Dark Souls, like I'm thinking of those optional bosses, right? Where some of them are just like, I'm not fucking doing that. I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to keep playing the game, right? Like, but that's the buy-in, right? I think certain games have certain expectations of the player. And I, you know, I think the discussion around stuff like Dark Souls in an easy mode, there are so many technical a lot of bad takes issues that, that on yeah. both sides of that argument. A lot of bad takes and a lot of like misunderstandings about how design works on like a level. There, it's like with roguelikes, right? Why are all roguelikes hard? It's because the way you design roguelikes is around the idea of dying and progressing again. Well, how do players die? They die when they're bad at the game or the game is hard. Therefore, they cannot switch that up too much. Otherwise, they won't be a roguelike. Therefore, can you make an easy mode roguelike? No, you'd be making an adventure game where you don't die. That is, by and large, the design philosophy around that. With Cuphead, the game is supposed to be hard, right? But like you said, I think the point is that the core experience is having a beginning, a middle, and an end, and the end being that final boss. And if you're not experiencing that final boss and that conclusion to that story, 
on the easy mode, but you are on every other mode, you're unlocking players out of that core experience. But if you're hiding, you know, the Chicago typewriter in Resident Evil 4 or something like that behind the idea of finishing the game multiple times and you're getting Leon in a suit or whatever, you know, that's fine. The player, that's that's only going to enhance their further experience after they finish the core experience. What I'm thinking is, you know how you usually do get that whole thing where the pushback is, oh, just get good or whatever, right? If you do it like that, they actually do get good because the whole thing is they say, oh, I do want the Chicago typewriter. And so they play the game again. And just by the experience of playing it again and knowing the system's a bit better, they get better. Like it's this sort of thing where I, I feel like it is actually bad game design to expect players to whack their head against the wall if it's not like done with a, like if it's just done with like, oh, we ramped up the sliders and now it's just like, your reaction time isn't fast enough. Because, like, the thing I'm kind of remember, reminded of is, like, yeah. I can't remember the name of the guy, but one of the guys who founded Naughty Dog, I think, you know, he made this game called Toe Jam and Earl, right? That old classic. And I think I remember him saying yeah. something yeah. in a post-mortem or something. He said that one of the biggest mistakes he made with that game was this, like, oh, trying to trap the player. And that's not good game design. Like, trying to, trying to like, constantly block progress, that doesn't make the game good. It just... It just makes like players frustrated. And I think like, you know, like I also played RE4 for the first time this year and I was like kind of blown away at just like this, the the pace of that. I've heard it has like adaptive difficulty. And I just think, you know, maybe, you know, games where it's like, you know, Cuphead or Doom or something, maybe the first playthrough is the one everyone experiences. And then, you know, after that is when the, the, the harder difficulties unlock or, or something. Because I just think there's also this other thing of like... Uh, <laughs> I think George's house is burning down. Uh, <laughs> Just come to the toilet again. Anyone who listens regularly um, will know. Like what the thing happens. I kind of think worry, is like uh, g- games like that. Like basically, I'm I'm sort of in pre-production on my next game that's going to have a little bit of procedural generation in it. And my thinking around it is like maybe Excellent. the first playthrough should be a curated one, so that everyone gets that same first impression of what it is, and then from there, that's when the key gets turned, and then it's right. You know the idea now. Now see what it does with it on the subsequent ones, because because the the procedural generation I'm talking about is ones where it really changes. Like, well, it's almost it's almost like teaching the rule set and then being like, here is the game, but you get this experience where the like, rule set um, is this guided platinum games. They they tend to like. I remember hearing something about that where platinum games tend to be they go with the idea that the first playthrough is the tutorial. And then the idea being that you will play afterwards mm. on the higher difficulties, just just because you know. Yeah, because you works. have all these yeah. rankings, you have all of these uh, combos. What? Yeah, George, I've I've been sitting on a burning counter example this whole time that I think really really points out how it's a matter of implementation. It's on case by case basis, and it has to do with the psychology of whether the player is feeling locked and when they're feeling rewarded. Yeah. And that is bullet hell Japanese shmups. These and, and a lot of super duper difficult quarter muncher arcade games in general, because they're only 30 minutes long. So that way of having a final level or a final boss that's locked out if you only get it through one quarter feels like a final a narrative that begins with you repeating the game over and over again on one corner and then ending with you beating the final boss and then putting it away and seeing the credits roll. And then I never really feel the temptation to play these again. Mm. But that is because they lock that final boss out of you, unless you do it on more than uh So the idea of those, but the the design philosophy of those games is to get you into a flow state, right? They are very, very specifically attuned to get you into a flow state, and the re- the the reason they're so fast, and the reason you restart them immediately, you know, 
it traditionally, I guess, you know, hammering the quarters in is the idea that you never leave that Zen flow state, right? And you're just repeating that experience. And as you said, they're only 30 minutes long. So it's not necessarily the completion of that project. It's the, it's so the it feeling feel like it. Yeah. It's the, the feel isn't there. It's the feel of the Zen state that you get into the, the flow state in which you are re- doing those repetitive actions that feel good, moving side to side, firing bullets, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting because it is a case-by-case basis, right? You think about Sekiro, you think about Dark Souls. I think arguably you could make easy modes for those games by having enemies have lower health, but that still means you need to avoid attacks and you still need to do certain things. But if you start then getting into the nitty-gritty of what makes a game like Dark Souls so great, which is like its animations, the telltale signs of what characters and bosses do, then you're fundamentally changing the game and that not necessarily is what Dark Souls is. So the easy mode is, a, is is like a sacrificial lamb that maybe cannot exist, but if it did exist, it would Can be I a poor version of that game. Just because... Observation. Okay, yeah. so I recently played the Castlevania collection, right? And like that's the one that came out, mm. the Castlevania anniversary, and it has like all the NES and Super Nintendo ones. Actually, it's Castlevania for the Super... Uh, the Nintendo... No... Anyway, <laughs> oh, um, no. Anyway, okay. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm mainly just a fan of the OG original, right? And I, for the longest time, I'd be playing on the the American version, European version, and I'd get to probably about the second level, and I just be like, fuck this. The fucking Medusas keep knocking me off. I'm done. Close the you know browser emulator. I mean, I don't use emulators. Nintendo. Uh, I buy all my games legitimately, but then I got this collection, and it comes with the Japanese version, right? And What's interesting about the Japanese version is it actually has an easy mode and all that changes for the entire game is it just changes that if you get hit by an enemy, you don't go back, like you don't get knocked back. And that is the only, that, no, oh, it does because change it changes the, the difficulty of just the quarter crunching <laughs> sections. But for all the boss fights and that, it's still, yeah, you, you mock me, Liam. I've got my hands up. <laughs> No, I'm 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 praising you. I'm praising you because I complained about a game called Panzer Paladin. That sounds like it has anime girls. Uh, that came out last. <laughs> uh, no, thankfully, is it called Panzer Paladin? Yeah, it was like a robot mech game, uh, kind of Castlevania action style game from Tribute Games. Made they make some good stuff. They made the Scott Pilgrim. They were a part of the team that made the Scott Pilgrims. But one of the worst parts of that game, and the reason why that game sucks so hard, is the fucking knockback was like, hey, we're going to take our OG Castlevania and we're going to fucking crank it by three. And it was awful. Awful. Because it just wouldn't match with the level design of like how wide the platforms were or how wide jumps were. So it just felt so off. And that game would have been so much better if it just didn't have it. Would the game have been easier possibly but would it have been less frustrating and a better experience fuck yeah it would have right and i imagine this is a very similar feeling to that where you just i just want to play the game well, i, I don't want to deal with time. what now, is granted inherently- the game has like a save state thing but I, like after playing it for two hours yeah. and using the save state thing i was able to like you know burn my way through it but with the thing going man i really want to play this again because i feel like I, if i got good enough I could like play that one like on one life and then eventually move up to the one where I can like do it with the knockback, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm used to the knockback and stuff. And it's just like, yeah, yeah. I feel like it's one of those things where, you know, my question after 
playing that was like, okay, which is the one with the best game design then? Like, which is the one that feels the best one to play? And I'm like, at the moment I'm leaning, it actually feels better to play the like easy mode on Japanese because it's like, you're not having to sort of like stop the action of, you know, doing your whipping and stuff because you, uh, you know, were crossing a gap and, you know, an enemy appeared out of nowhere and just knocked you off the edge. Because there's some areas in there where it is like quarter crunching, like it's designed to just make you like lose or whatever, right? Like it's it's one of those like intentional things they did in the 80s in arcades to try and, you know, get as much money out of you as possible, but it's on a home console. And so it's it's really interesting because it's like, I kind of wonder was that actually the original, like, you know, Liam, when you think about that, of, like, the code that goes into knocking someone back, yeah, was that original Castlevania? Yeah. They played it through without the knockback, and they realized this is, like, what we want it to be, but it's not, like, and they they built the whole yeah. game around no knockback, and then they they were like, oh, shit, now the game's actually, like, you can kind of beat it in a weekend. Where's our, like money people return uh, yeah people are gonna or, or so, so yeah exactly. 100 i could strategy guide. yeah i could believe that so much i think that's the thing is i think what people just need to ask themselves i think this goes back to my points about your tutorial is what does the player want to do what do that what do, what is interesting about your game that the player wants to do like castlevania you want to fucking move from left to right, killing enemies. You don't want to, especially on an NES, you don't want to be like avoiding things and getting knocked back, right? That's but frustrating. The platforming's not the fun, it's the whipping. No, it's not. It's the it's the necessary world building that feels like the player is progressing, right? But the the moment-to-moment action of killing enemies and getting items and then moving forward is the thing the player wants to do. So what does a player want to do in your game? And how do you enhance that to be the thing? And it's like Monster Hunter Rise. I find like Monster Hunter Rise is the solution to why most people might not get into Monster Because Monster Hunter is a game where almost constantly, especially players who are trying to get over that wall of getting into the series, oh, is the knockback in Monster Hunter. is so It's traditionally Japanese where it knocks you down and you are so out of it, the state compared to other modern games, that it feels like an age. But what does the player want to be doing? The player wants to be slapping the monster. So what have they done in Rise that improves that is adding this wirebug feature that when you do get knocked back, you immediately react by pressing B and A and then or B and L1 or whatever it is, and then you fucking fly back towards the monster. And you're back in the action, back doing it, because that is what the player wants to be doing. Well, how do you offset the knockback, which is the difficulty? You just up the damage of the attacks that the monsters do, meaning players are more wary of getting hit instead of these horrible knockbacks where the player has no control. So your mantra, your message is, what does the player want to do? And you know what you always see damn near 90% of the time on any articles or tweets that are making this call for Soulsborne's games to have easier mode is the following sentence. What if I just want to experience the lore? There's so many people who would have so much to gain from going through a dark, spooky game with cool environmental storytelling, with a world that gets bigger and bigger every time you read an item description mm. in your inventory, who are not going to have a way to get that out of out of one of those games because the accessibility option's not there for them. Agreed. And so, like, there is this market of people who want to do something in there, and 
they are not able to do what they want so to do. So then that is the case by case and the balance, right? So you could flip that and be like, well, what makes the law interesting about Dark Souls? Is it the interconnected world that you explore over a longer pace because you have to overcome adversity? How different would that game be if you were one-shotting all the enemies and you found 50 lore pieces within an hour and already you've consumed all of the way that that diegetically that game is giving you lore? Because if you, you know, spend an hour trying to defeat a boss and you find a ring on that boss and you read that and you're like, fuck, that means this is tied to that guy that I saw like three hours ago. And then I because I went through this shortcut and over there. So you still you're still making a gamble on whether or not you are actually changing what makes that game feel good to the player. And then on the flip side of that, well, how do you service the players who are like, well, actually, the main thing about Dark Souls or Sekiro is interfacing with these enemies, you know, updating my weapons and whatnot. The, like the the main thing in Dark Souls is is combat and interfacing with enemies, but there is the whole secondary experience of experiencing the lore. So, what if the game just was like, well, here's the lore of the game in a in a book or well, like is that the same thing because wouldn't wouldn't the debate then be just 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 go to the fixture life wiki yeah well that's the thing go to go to game facts around it right oh, oh, well I, don't know. I just wanted to ask you guys how many people you think in the history of humankind have said i want to play this for the lore about a 30 minute arcade japanese bullet hell shmup Yes, very different. A bit easier of a case, right? What is the reason people like to play those games? Usually it's because of skill, right? They want to be good at something. I feel like the same as like Tetris Grandmasters and stuff like that. You know, it is that difficulty challenge. People do forget that difficulty inherently is also something players look forward to. Why do people enjoy Mega Man? So why is, how is Mega Man, you know, an iconic character? Yeah, his games are so fucking hard. It's because kids, do sometimes like that challenge, right? So I think you also have to balance that with, okay, this game is designed to be a certain way, and I think that's okay, and it isn't going to be for everyone. You can't make, you'll never please everybody. So it is important, though, to think about what about the wider-reaching aspects of your game. If your game is something that does contain a story, like let's take Hades as a really good example where a lot of people I know have bounced off Hades because they just can't defeat the game. So they're not getting the law because they can't get over the wall. So for them... And that's kind of a dualism problem. One of my mates, he made a video about La Mulana and he's talking similar about that where the, the first puzzle you come across is like 90% of players give up on the first puzzle. And it's this sort of thing where the first puzzle is the like hardest fucking thing to figure out and then like but if you do figure it out it's sort of like it gets you in the mood of playing la milana but then when la milana 2 came out it was like a thing where they not casualized it or dumbed down but they made it a bit easier to sort of get into it the swing of it because la milana is actually one of those series where people do care about the lore a lot and i think it's one of those things where you know if 90 percent of people are giving up on the first bit is that like you know, all the all the all the friends being like, "Oh man, you got to play Lamar, It's so good. It's so good." And then they get to it, and then they just can't, and they can't get into it. Yeah, they can't. And it's sort of that whole yeah. thing, like you know, I suck at turn-based RPGs, right? Like I just, they just don't hold my attention well enough, or I'll I'll think I'm doing some epic strategy where I'm using all my items. So like for me, it was this whole thing where I got about halfway through like Lisa the Painful, 
And I was like, this game's fucking awesome. And, you know, obviously, yeah. like, I don't know, I've got pretty big respect for Austin Jorgson, like, doing such a sort of, like, abrasive game. But, but it was this kind of thing, like, mm. you know, I couldn't get through because by the time I'd been through two playthroughs and gotten to a point where I was fucked because I didn't have any diesel bombs left, I was like, <sighs> I love you, game, Austin, but I'm going to go watch a fucking Let's Play. <laughs> and... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like how I felt like recently. I've been like, I really kind of want to play that Shin Megami Tensei Nocturne remaster. I I love the art of the game. I absolutely love the original Shin Megami Tensei Demon like art style. But then I remember how fucking hard that game is, and I just remember how abrasive it is as well. And just like, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to. What the viewers are just processing right now is that game developers are actually really bad at games, and we're big scrubs. So. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. We know on the show I'm awful. But I just, going back to Dark Souls, because it's the easiest one, like, I think expectation is really important. Like, as we, you know, have discussed, like, why does every Dark Souls game, within five minutes of you playing it, make you fight a boss? You think about the Asylum Deem, you think about the the big fucking, like, guy with the chains and the, the like, head thing in Sekiro. In Dark Souls 3, you've got the guy in the, what's it called? He had Xorix, whatever his weird name is, has spawns like the big black mass from him. Why does Dark Souls and Sekiro make you do that within literally five to 10 minutes maximum of you spawning at the first point in the game? The expectation that the game is telling you, this is what you will be doing. This is what you will be doing for this game. This is what this game is all about. This is what you will be doing. Yeah, and we are going to show you this right now because it might not be for you. You know, if you get to that first boss, like Asylum Deem or something, you can't beat it or whatever. Especially with Asylum Deem, I think it's a bit easier because you can sort of get around that by cheesing it a little easier. But, you know, the Dark Souls 3 one is like a straight up fight in the middle of that pond and there's no way about it, right? You ain't getting through that if you are not up to the task. So the game is almost telling you, like, we're not going to make you spend an hour grinding earlier mobs and getting up to the combat system and, you know, kind of figuring your way out. We're not going to do that. What we're going to do is you're going to face three enemies, you're going to press the triggers to swing the sword, and then you're going to fight a big boss. Because that's what you will be doing in this game for the rest of the 30 to 50 hours that you'll play it. I think so expectation is important. When a game can ex- you know, explain to you from the offset, is this for you? Yes. No. Who knows? And then if the player is like, I do like this game, but it would be great if I could choose a, a different difficulty option, that's okay. Sometimes my most precious memories of the Dark Souls games are holding a lantern in the darkness, and my most hated memories of the Dark Souls games are getting stuck at bosses. And I do think it's a valid thing to want to play those games for the story and the immersion and the lore. And that uh, agreed, but I, once, some of those bosses really grinding. Agreed, but once again, I would I would ask you to just think about what. Okay, what if you one shot all those bosses and you would consume that lore really quickly, and the world doesn't feel as hard and abrasive and harsh because you're not going through those experiences, right? I think with Souls, it it's a bit more difficult because it's an the end justifies the means, right? Like it's not to become. Look, yeah, the Lord I, of Cinder I, I is know. to go it's through just... that journey. And would that game be anywhere near as good if you could only experience that? The way 
you're interested in this story is because people hype up Dark Souls. And it's like, wow, this fucking interconnected world with all this incredible, like, really, you know, environmental storytelling and all these pieces of lore that, you know, have these tidbits of information you're trying to get at. Is that as good if you strip away some of the harshness of it? I don't know, because they've not done it. It might not be for you and me, but I mean, I feel like like that's not for us. It's It's for... For other people, still not going to give that same charity to Doom Eternal though, because uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a different yeah. difficulty mode. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I have my own problems with that game. Since we just found out that Vess hates turn-based RPGs, AJ Rosk wants to ask that uh, since Sikuz is being configured into a turn-based RPG, but Judgment is sticking to the old brawl 'em up combat. Is there a long-running series that you would like to see make a mechanical shift happen for? There actually is one, and I think I've actually told George about what I'm going to be doing for my next game, because it is that, and I'll share it with everyone here. Uh, what it is... Oh, wait, it's not really a mechanical. It's more of a genre shift, isn't it? Because it basically is the mechanics, isn't it, George? Yeah, you're talking about the, the Metal Gear... Okay. We'll think a little harder. Um, yeah, yeah. Mechanical shift... Okay, actually, can I talk about a game where I thought the mechanical shift would have been fucking awesome and it ended up turning out <laughs> not great? Oh, man, we were so close to a Jeff Keighley <laughs> World exclusive the there. Okay. <laughs> I played a game last year called No Straight Roads, and it's one of those games where, like, I cool like, game. I'm really glad I supported the developers on this, but I really don't like the game because it does this thing where it's sort of like rhythm game that's like a beat-em-up game. Like a beat'em platform. But it yeah. doesn't really play very well because the rhythm stuff tends to not really sync up well. And like, uh, it just kind of, I, like, Liam, you sound like you've played it. You kind of back me up here. I played a demo of it back at Bit Summit, like in 2017. I oh, thought yeah. the presentation and what I saw was a bus fight yeah, yeah, of yeah. like a DJ like running around. Like, and there's, yeah. And I thought that was really cool looking. But I didn't really yeah, necessarily so, so get the feel from it's, that demo. It's a real, like, as I said, it's a really good game that I'm glad I supported the developers for because you can tell, like, it's one of those crews where, like, it's just a bunch of people who love what they're doing and, like, they put a bunch of effort into, like, the character designs look something straight out of, like, a gorilla's cover and, like, the, you know, the music is fucking tip top, eh? Like, it's, it, it's this sort of thing where the soundtrack adapts to what's happening in the fight because it's basically, like, there is a little bit of like platformy beat em up, but it's pretty boring. It's mainly like you go there for the boss fights because there are all these really interesting character designs and stuff, and like they're really awesomely made. And like it's one of those things where it's like it seems like a good idea for a mechanical shift on paper, but then you play it and you're like, okay, what's the main appeal of like, you know, beat em up games? It's like hitting stuff, right? Like pressing the, hit, the attack button. But with that game, they're trying to get you to do rhythm based stuff on top of that that's sort of optional, but it's also sort of like, if you don't do it, you'll take damage. Like if you don't land the rhythm, you'll take damage. So like, or or the other one was like, if you, for example, one of the enemies will like jump and it will send out a shockwave, right? And if you're listening well to the music, you can know when to jump over the shockwave, but it's not quite tuned with when you would press the jump button with the, like when the shockwave would get to you. So it's kind of like, you're still looking at the screen, yeah. not the music. And then, then it's got like this other system where it's like, if you parry a song that you can't detect what's the parryable beat ahead of time. So it's this weird thing where you kind of have to know when's the parryable beat, but even then I think it's also like got a bit of randomization. Instead of hearing the beat, then pressing the parry, it's like it's expecting you to 
parry on that beat. So you need to recognize yes. the beat before yes. the parry so you, beat. You have to know what that beat okay. is ahead of yeah. time. You don't get like a visual representation of yeah. like a little thing going down on the, the the ground. It's like one of those things where it's like it's a. I feel like it's one of those things where it's a really good idea on paper, but then the execution was just like it just wasn't right. Like because I'm thinking of. There's a game developer from Malaysia. I think his name's Hafiz Afman, but he made this game series called Rhythm Doctor. And it's kind of like, yeah, you, you know about Rhythm Doctor? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and it's like, yeah, yeah. it seems like his idea around yeah, that yeah. was he got the, the, the main like appeal of those games where you've got the visual representation, but you also can just do it by with like the one button. But like, yeah, I don't know. Because like the thing about that game is like the, the, the characters are musicians. So they're like playing the music as you're fighting. But then they have like musical stings for certain attacks. So like when you press R1, it'll shoot off like a little projectile. And when you do that, like with say the drummer, he'll like smash the cymbal. But like when you're in the fight and the enemy opens up, you'll just spam R1. So rather than it being like, you know, going to the beat, it's just, yeah, you just like, yeah, you're just. <laughs> so Crypt of the Necrodancer had a cool trick to a cool hidden accessibility feature to account for this, where if your button presses were not in tune with the music after like two to three failed attempts, it had a system in place that would try to detect what sort of rhythm you were aiming at anyway. So like even if it wasn't perfectly up to the music, so long as your fingers were still pressing buttons in a regular concurrent beat, it still counted it as okay. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, sorry, I didn't answer the question, but I'll let you go, Liam. <laughs> yeah, so what would be the, gen- the genre <laughs> shift? Um, go. I got one. Elder Scrolls games would all be better with literally any other kind of combat. <laughs> like turn-based, third-person, I don't know, text-based dice rolls. Imagine anything, an Elder Scrolls game else. that had Kingdoms of Amalar's combat. That would be good. How how did that one work? That was a third person action combat game. Had a really unique dual attacking system where you attacked with you know your weapons, but you also then had mag- magic hotkeys and stuff like that. Wasn't it on Xbox? But it was all very. It was yeah, three sixty, and I think it was on PS three. It recently got a remaster for the Nintendo Switch actually. That had a really nice combat system. Unfortunately, it came out at the same time as uh, around the same time as Skyrim, so never really had the the day in the sun that maybe it deserved. But you think about the world building in the Elder Scrolls games is far outweighing most fantasy RPGs, right? But that game definitely had, for sure, a better combat system. And if Elder Scrolls did, it would be unstoppable. We'd, we'd never... The world peace, hunger would, would go away, poverty. All of Todd I, Howard's I tax money could pay one. for that. <laughs> Hear me out. Alien Isolation. What was it? But it's yeah, yeah. A- alien isolation, right? Oh, okay. But yeah. it's a battle royale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it doesn't have a closing ring. It's just the alien. Oh, and everyone's trying to pick their own hiding spot and swat everyone else You're all out. on the, the, uh, the station at the That's same a great time. Idea. There's no closing that ring. Is, it's just the alien yeah. gets smarter as the game goes on. And the resources get lower. Or there is a closing ring, but it's the ship parts falling off and burning into space. So you have to escape certain areas of the ship before they fall off the Nostromo. 
and then you end up in a, an enclosed like, space uh, with the aliens. Because the thing I think is in like Battle Royales all came out of Daisy, right? There's a great video essay on yeah. the internet about that. The armor, and they basically right? uh, the which one? Sorry, the armor mod. The armor right? mod. Yeah, yeah, and basically, I, I like how it was on the internet, not <laughs> YouTube or. I don't know, Newgrounds. The Newgrounds video essay is about uh, Daisy and boobs and uh, being gay. Uh, so that's that's the Newgrounds parody. Uh, no, so um, <laughs> can't tell Liam's <laughs> laughing or yawning. <laughs> um, A bit basically, of both. Uh, the, 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 Just swap the mechanics. The thing I think that Battle Royales are missing is that in its Daisy DNA, Daisy has that thing in it where everyone would fuck each other over, like, or either they would like you know rob each other or kill each other, or they would do those like you know sort of. Uh, Sorry, man. There's only two seats in the car. We're out of here. The cords. You know. I feel like if you had something like that with that alien isolation game, because like with that you can do the manual override of the doors, where you can lock the doors. So like if someone's running down the hallway away from the alien, you can like lock them in or something. Um, anyway, so. It's funny because I have similar thoughts about something I really enjoy about games. Because I don't particularly like multiplayer, online multiplayer specifically in games. I like local multiplayer games a lot more. What I do like is asymmetrical multiplayer. And I think you could improve so many single player experiences if you just had other players running around around you, affecting the environment in a kind of fucking with you kind of system. And if you think about, imagine playing Metal Gear Solid 5, where other snakes are also <laughs> trying to sneak into the same barracks, right? And they can cause alarms to go off, and they can cause guards to come away from you. But the idea is that you're not really sneaking together. It's almost like a journey asymmetric style system where you just turn up, and then maybe someone's already halfway through the mission, and you're like, oh, fuck. Or like they trigger an alarm, and the guards go to one side of the base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, go over there, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's kind of like you don't know who that person is, but they have seen you and they're like, well, maybe I know what your goal is and maybe I can help you out a little bit. Like you're in this kind of espionage camaraderie together. I think a lot of, I think, you know, Dark Souls does it quite well, but I think asymmetrical multiplayer could be way more interesting uh, if it affected single-player games. Imagine if in MGS5, after the Sahelanthropus bit, you didn't kill it straight away. Instead, it would just randomly free roam around the map. Can you imagine that? Like, if uh, <laughs> like after they've, you remember that bit where like it chases you for a little bit after you get Emmerich out, and it's just like looking for you. Imagine if like then uh, like from that portion of the game, yeah, it's terrifying. Kill it. It's like, oh yeah, it'll just sometimes randomly rock up and it'll be like walking along, and then it's like, oh shit, this changes everything because like if I do get spotted now, it is. I'm fucked. Like, you know, I can't shoot my way out of it. Sorry. I cut you off, George. You go. Yeah. It is terrifying. Speaking of stealth games, I am reminded of how much more sense the Watch Dogs games make when you play them as stealth games instead of Grand Theft Auto games. The story, the premise, the the care, you supposed to be caring about your character. Like, all of that makes such little sense when you play as a homicidal psychopath versus a sneaky criminal outlaw trying to stay out of everyone's view. Like, that is how everything about that game presents itself up until you start randomly mashing buttons on the controller and all hell breaks loose. Yeah, I think that also stands as another example of a game where changing the combat to a different system would completely change the public perception and reception and 
maybe the sales too. It is interesting. I think everyone has a good idea of like a game they like, but how they can improve it and be like, well, what if it was more like X game? And you're like, ah, maybe you could do that. I am a big fan of like the Uno theory where when you go on vacation, you only have like a set of Uno cards and something else. And then you've played Uno a thousand times. So you hybridly combine whatever game with something. I love that. I love taking one it's thing. The next you know, yeah, it's like, game. Yeah, it was a trend for a while. Yeah, it's with, like, like, you know, Curse the Golf or whatever. little card menu. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely a thing. Like you take one thing, you smash it into the other, right? And then you just do that. And um, I like that because you, you, you're you essentially experimenting with those ideas. What about Super Mario Bros? But it's a battle royale, right? Like, <laughs> you know, then you get Mario 186 or whatever it was called, right? Mario 35, actually. <laughs> Mario 35. God, I can't even remember. Uh, it was Tetris 99, wasn't it? So there you go. I got hit by a bit of that in the early days of Rainbow Six Siege when there were only 12 operators. And in this 5v5 game, it would introduce it as a stack of five cards played against other five cards. So in the back of my mind, I had this like interesting conflation with playing a card that game. That is a crying shame what happened game. to that game, eh? Like, I don't know if you played it. Well, apparently it's still doing okay. Yeah. I just kind of drifted away when it got more and more complicated yeah. like it was it was the team fortress 2 situation i really enjoyed vanilla team fortress 2 and then came back two years later and it did not look like the same game anymore i'm sure i could get back into rainbow six siege but hunt showdown has kind of sort of filled that hole in my life so no don't you like have work don't you have, don't you have genre defining experience <laughs> <laughs> don't you have to be making the most political games ever come on you guys are in the early morning hours at this point and and it has gone on for so very, very long, but it has been absolutely positively Holy wonderful. Holy shit, I just looked at what the time is, both in real life and, and also how long this episode was. Have. Wow. So let's very quickly have a gut instant reaction without thinking about it too hard. Nicarus asks, if you could replace one body part, what would it be and what would you switch it to? Game controllers for hands. I don't know. Probably not, now that I think about it more. But that is my initial gut reaction in the heat of the moment. It already sounds pretty stupid in retrospect, but for some reason, that's the picture my brain made when I first read this question. Like, like as word association. I would just be taking the middleman out. I don't have to use my fingers anymore. I'm sure reflexes would get way faster. Man, if my hand was the keyboard that I was, like, editing videos with, maybe it wouldn't feel so much like work. It probably still would feel like work. Now everyone knows what George's gut reactions are, like a process that need calculative efforts yeah. to get uh, to that gut reaction. I think I would just, like, some form of device in my arm. Done. That makes sense. Uh... Ooh. So yeah, the, 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 the Adam time, Jensen like... eyes... Try to imagine looking deeply into the eyes of a... Yeah, you try, and they would get smushed in. They'd be like, ow! Because you'd be, like, getting cl too close, you know? <laughs> they'd, like, they'd, like, they'd, like, go see their friends, and they got these red rings around their eyes. Like, what happened? He's like, oh, nothing. We were just watching TV, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's just normal All for right. me. I'd probably just want some sort of device in my arm. Like, if I could replace my gotta... forearm... You gotta be more specific. All right, I'll replace what, what my kind of device. I'll replace. I don't know, like, uh, like a, like a uh, cooking device. See, I'd worry about replacing it with like some sort of like a power tool. No, it's more like an iPad or something. Oh, okay, a, a mobile device. Yeah, like a like a personal computer or something. But then I would think, 
you know, due to whatever that law of degrading is, my arm would be very quickly out of date <laughs> within like uh, six months to a year. So I feel like it'd be a bit of a gamble instead of just keeping my normal arm. So by the time this podcast episode is out, word on on some news websites like USA Today is that the UFO report is going to be released in in America. So by the time this is out, our listeners will know whether or not the aliens have mobile tablets on one hand, game controller on the other, <laughs> you will and know two telescopes coming out of their look eyes. Like because I mean, any sort of fantastical, we will. We'll, we'll We'll know if they look like bears or if they look like hairy men. We will also know if they do have game controls for hands that they will be able to play Umarangi Generation on Switch yeah. on June 5th by the time this podcast comes out. Hey, Vess, where can people find your <laughs> video? You can game find the game on, on the Steam internet at the moment. And if this is out uh, by the 5th, you'll be able to get it on Switch. Just type Umurangi, U-M-U-R-A-N-G-I, and that should come up. I mean, it's a very unique name. Oh, it's a really interesting name. name. some weird conversations I have with publishers about. They were like, can you change it? It's like, no. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> just, it's like, no. Just period. <laughs> Put the can face on top. To <laughs> something not. No. I'm, I'm, like, we're going to get... What's well, a smile to you? And that's like, I, I think it's one of the reasons why Playism picked it up, because they weren't like... You know, oh, that's a weird sounding because you know, like, well, no, it's it's honest, oh, honestly. Like, I had is... conversations, and there were people being like, "Can you dumb it down a bit?" Right, and it, and it was like, it does make sense? Wow. Well, no, no, more, more like just the whole the thing that they deal with different right? like cultural contexts all the time because they do Chinese and and yeah. uh, Japanese and all these yeah. other different language group games. So when they saw that, they're like, yeah, it's all right. And yeah, yeah, well, it's like Red Sky, like sort of sunsetting. You know, that red sunset. Because it's the sunset, you know, it's the the final thing. Anyway, we're going to keep going for another hour. So, <laughs> but yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Vaselikov. You can follow my YouTube channel that just has trailers at that as well. Or you can you can go to George's YouTube channel and you'll have a video up by then, eh, George? No. Oh, the pressure is on. <laughs> the pressure. <laughs> the pressure is on. It's been on, trust me. But yeah, if you want to feel cool and look cool and make art during the apocalypse in a video game instead of in real life like you already are, then check out Umarangi Generation. Definitely one of my favorite games of the year. It's shown up on a lot of game of the year lists over the past year. And it has a lot of very important messages about the coming years that we're in for and in my experience yeah if you've made it this far if you've made it this far and you haven't reported the podcast for communist propaganda or something i don't know <laughs> you'll be you'll be in for a good treat <laughs> when it comes to questioning that stuff about yourself this is a game that helped me cope with some very negative emotions during a very dark time and that seems to have resonated with a lot of people similarly thank you so much for showing up and coming on that yeah was dude Thank you Love so much. Really long blast. It was an absolute Thank pleasure. You. Did not feel like as much time passed. It just no, passed, I'd, lo- I'd love to come on again, maybe in the future, yeah. next year. But you know, good to keep catching up. Yeah, oh, you yeah, are I'm welcome sure anytime. We would too. Yeah, we would yes. love you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, friend. Yeah. Thank you to and everybody who stuck with us for the three hours and twenty-five make minutes. Make sure you get the dad and son shirt. Oh, would uh, you? Yeah. With the, the Not even planned. By Zig Pasca. Uh, yeah. Link in the description. 
Thank you. <laughs> Thank okay. you for reminding us <laughs> to do our own products. Show. We market. Jesus. Our brand. <laughs>